Hello, and welcome to the Understanding Autism podcast, where we talk about issues related to those in the autism and greater neurodiverse community. I'm your co-host, Brett Thayer. And I'm Nicole Cabillas. Today's episode is about the relationship between autism and shame. This is a doozy of an episode packed with a lot of information that we hope will be helpful for autistic adults, parents, teachers, and therapists. Almost all of our information comes from two books, Shame and Therapy, Treatment Strategies to Overcome Coarsham and Reconstruct the Authentic Self by Patty Ashley. And we do want to clarify that this particular resource is a general book about shame. It is not specifically focused on autism. Unlike our other resource, which is Trauma, Stigma, and Autism, Developing Resilience and Loosening the Grip of Shame by Gordon Gates. There's the topics, definitely, oh, hang on. There's definitely yeah, overlap yeah. between the two. That's why you chose them. Okay. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, but before we re-recorded, um, Brett had asked, you know, does shame-informed therapy talk about autism? And it doesn't. It just focuses on shame specifically. But it's a fantastic resource that really delves into a lot about shame. And mm-hmm. I got a lot out of it in my healing journey of, you know, resolving my core shame. Fantastic. Yeah. The topics that we are going to cover in this episode are what shame is, as well as the difference between shame and core shame, the neurobiological and emotional impact of shame, how autism stigma creates the foundation of core shame, the types of sources that cause trauma and shame for people with autism, and solutions for autistic adults to heal their core shame, as well as how neurotypical caregivers and allies don't perpetuate shame. Normally in our podcast episodes, we talk about our experiences with the topic that we discuss. For the purpose of this episode, we are going to talk about shame holistically and give our reactions based on each topic rather than sharing personal stories. All right, so again, what we do is we define our topics Right. So what is shame? Shame is a painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. In shame-informed therapy, Patty Ashley talks about the difference between shame and core shame. So these are important points to consider. Okay, so shame then is a primary, primary emotion that functions as a moral compass in repairing and maintaining relationships. When we feel remorseful for hurting another person, for example, for doing something that violates our sense of integrity, shame can actually lead us to make amends and allows us to learn how not to repeat those same mistakes again. It is a mechanism of social control that deters us from hurting ourselves or others, and it underlies the formation of conscience. So the core shame, however, is a deeper underlying sense of being unworthy of love and belonging that may or may not have an external situation in view. The root cause of shame is created by big and little ruptures with interpersonal bridges. Okay, so the the metaphor of interpersonal bridges is something that um, both these authors talk about, and it's a really important concept. So the interpersonal bridges is the bond between two people. It could be parents or caregivers or teachers, therapists, peers, etc. Constant ruptures in these interpersonal bridges cause a feeling of not good enough, which creates the foundation of core shame. There's an overarching fear of being exposed as fundamentally fundamentally deficient and tragically flawed. 
This results in a chronic sense of unworthiness, unlovability, and disconnection. Trauma, abuse, neglect, bullying, and repeated failures can also create core shame. So core shame erodes the ability to recognize the true self or the essence of what has been born to be. Instead, what happens is that a false sense emerges in an attempt to feel lovable. People create stories about themselves based on what others have suggested they should become, or they develop faulty coping mechanism. That is, the false sense develops based on what others want. It overconforms and only loves conditionally. It hides, covers, or denies feelings. There are five components of core shame, low self-esteem, humiliation, problems with self-continuity, isolation or not fitting in, and feeling of being watched by others. And then core shame manifests as these different behaviors, guilt, secrets, addiction, self-harm, anxiety, minimization, intellectualization, codependency, projecting, perfectionism, grandiosity, narcissism, gossip, blaming, rage, jealousy, judgment, contempt, isolation, depression, people-pleasing, and defiance. Okay, so there's actually a neurobiology of this as well. So the neurobiology of shame then is the idea that it ruptures of the interpersonal bridges again, creates a loss of co-regulation and an increased issue of safety or danger and a life threat. Various parts of the nervous system, including the vagus nerves and the ventral vagal complex, which is a social engagement system in our brains, stay in a chronic state of distress due to core shame. The amygdala goes into overdrive. So we are wired for connection and co-regulation in order to maintain a self of safety. Positive early experiences that are good enough create neural pathways that regulate the nervous system, contributing to the development of emotional resilience. When the, center, when the ventral vagal complex is firmly grounded, we feel safe, we feel calm, and we feel connected. When a client, and this is what Patty says, so when a client is in a state of shame, there is a, a loss and a sense of empathy for the self, and the client cannot see others as empathetic either. Shame is healed when the client sees emotional joining and empathy as possible. Yeah, so we wanted to put that quote in because there's this stereotype that people with autism don't feel emotion, that they are disconnected, oblivious, unable to connect with other people on emotional level. And I think Patty's quote really gets to the point of why this is so hard for people with autism. Um, again, when a client is in a state of shame, there is a loss of a sense of empathy for the self, and it's hard to be empathetic towards others in that regard. So this brings up a lot of valuable points in relation to the autistic experience. So first, let's talk about the polyvagal complex and the vagus nerve. This is responsible for our emotional and sensory regulation, as well as making sure our organs are functioning correctly, such as digestion. When core shame creates strain on the vagus nerve, it makes sense that the vagus nerve of an autistic person is working overtime to keep the person safe and functioning. I wouldn't be surprised if the vagus nerve is constantly burning out. The second thing is in reference to a person with core shame being walled off from other people. 
this is a defense mechanism and it goes back to what I was saying earlier. Um, it's important to recognize that these stereotypical autistic behaviors are actually a defense mechanism to protect a person from feeling shame. All right. So let's now talk about uh, Gordon Gates. So as we shift towards the important points brought up in the book, Trauma, Stigma, and Autism, he says that um, stigma, stigma breeds core shame. In other words, there's a direct link between the two. Okay, so stigma then, he says, is a form of trauma. It targets people on the basis of beliefs about them that have nothing to do with who they are. It undermines a person's humanity and overshadows the fulfillment of their identity by placing assumptions about negativity, perceived qualities, over openness of their actual personhood. So this aligns with um, Patty Ashley's convention that core shame comes from the invalidation of the authentic self. It also reinforces the stigma. That stigma that is the that the that's the primary cause of interpersonal bridges constantly being ruptured. So stigma then is the perceived physical and or psychological threat to our personhood and residual self-protection that underlies much of the suffering involved. Having our humanity threatened, undermined, and devalued is fundamentally traumatic. It can shift us into a hyper-aroused state of defensive safety, seeking or guarded withdrawal and self-isolation. So this kind of trauma is experienced as shame. So then he goes into talk about what toxic shame is, which is experience of abandonment, rejection, blame, and abuse that oppresses us into believing that our fundamental humanity or true self is defective and flawed. The chronic invalidation can lead to an oversense of danger alarm in the body-mind system and developmental trauma, which is disturbances of emotional attachment. He also talks about identity fatigue, which is when we experience repeated stigma, judgment, rejection, and or prejudice because of qualities inherent to our personhood Qualities we may not be able to change or may not have chosen. Complex trauma involving chronic assaults on our fullness of our humanity. And identity fatigue has also been brought up in books people with autism have written about masking. It's that whole idea that who you are is not welcomed. And right. the, the whole idea of a marginalized identity is if you are open about who you are, you know, there you experience consequences for that. And people with autism do have marginalized identities. And so there's a lot of work that people do to hide that part of themselves so they don't experience marginalization. And it's something that with well-intentioned, a lot of caregivers promote. But what that does to the mental health of a person with autism, it just, it creates burnout. It creates anxiety and depression. And ultimately that is all identity fatigue. Mm -hmm. Gates believes that autistic challenges such as executive functioning, emotional regulation, self-absorbed focus, and not being able to take account of other people's perspectives is the result of invalidation trauma. Now, uh, I don't think that this was mentioned earlier in the podcast, but Gordon Gates is a psychotherapist that is on the autism spectrum, and most of his clients are on the autism spectrum. So I think he's pretty valid in making that claim. He says, when an autistic person's trauma is activated, their autistic behaviors may increase, leading to more concentrated stigma. 
Invalidation trauma also increases lack of belonging, social confusion, and fragile sensitivity. Taking responsibility for autistic behaviors is a way to manage stigma. Stigmatized individuals can make an effort to identify, be mindful of, and learn strategies to address the behaviors others find frustrating to the extent consistent with their capability for insight, ability to adapt, and readiness for change. This does not mean that they have to adhere to conventional social expectations and everything, which, in other words, is a form of masking. Right. Dominant others in a position to inflict stigma must make an effort to distinguish unconventional and unexpected behaviors from deliberately hurtful and selfish behaviors. So in previous episodes, I have talked about one of my autistic fixations being social skills education. This fixation was a trauma response and a way for me to cope with taking control of not experiencing stigmatic social interactions. I also had core shame that I was not a socially, emotionally intelligent person because of my autism. And because of that, I would not have friends, a significant other, or a job. Though I have learned a lot of valuable social skills because of this fixation, I constantly feel inferior with my social, emotional intelligence and constantly experience stress to have all of the social rules figured out. It's a never ending cycle. All right, so let's talk now about um, stigma and core shame as it relates to this concept of quote unquote being normal, right? Gordon Gates talks about some issues of the label of normal and that impact. Okay, so mainstream society, this which is the statistically average and the dominant, hold on to these social expectations and conventional standards as if they were membership requirements, right? I kind of like that meta metaphor about mainstream society. This is how who we are. This is how we are. And then anything else, anything other looks is looked upon as different. So when a person does not fit the image of what the majority expects everyone to be like, there's a harsh judgment of unworthiness or this concept or this feeling of unworthiness, right? Autistic people are judged, dismissed, marginalized, rejected, and stereotyped because their actions don't conform to conventional standards and their social value is diminished accordingly, right? So-called quote-unquote normal people struggle to become better than normal, and those who find themselves set apart by their uniqueness and or challenges torture themselves because they wish to be more normal, right? This is a coping mechanism for people with autism to avoid experiencing stigma. It is also what parents teach people with autism to strive for out of fear that they will experience stigma. Now, I can personally relate to this as a parent because, you know, this is a parent's fear. We don't want you to be different, so act normal, right? Which is actually creating more harm than good. Okay, so this causes people with autism to self-adapt or to be encouraged by neurotypical support members to perform to um, performative normality, which is a fancy way of saying to just act normal. Right. This is the process of de developing behaviors aligned with social and conventional expectations to make relations with others flow more smoothly. This supposedly makes life easier all around, but what it does is create a protective shield against stigma and doesn't heal core shame. It makes neurotypical, feel, neurotypical people feel comfortable, but it drains neurodiverse people because they're constantly having to meet the, these demands in conventional society. Okay, so this is also called stigma cloaking, strategies of stigma management that 
deflects or avoids the impact of stigma. Stigma cloaking and masking, autistic camouflage are the same thing. Uh, not seeing a person's autism is also a form of invalidation stigma. Uh, for example, quote unquote, I don't see your autism, or people might say, I would have never guessed you're autistic, or they might say, you maybe you were mis misdiagnosed, or well, everyone's a little autistic. So the stigma cloaking, masking, and performative normality are meant to give the impression that a person just isn't autistic, which is a survival mechanism for them. So I, before we keep going, I, I have a question for you as a parent okay. and something I want to discuss. So one of the things that, that well-intentioned parents and caregivers latch onto is we know what the stigma is, you know, that if somebody with autism is open about who they are uh, with their strengths and struggles, there are social consequences. So the response then is what can we do to teach this person to be as assimilated to quote unquote normal culture as possible? And I've had a lot of conversations with my mom about this because I, I, I'm very aware that there was good intentions of that. And right. at the time that I was diagnosed and also when your son Josh was diagnosed, which was the 90s, right. you know, there, there wasn't a lot of resources by people with autism sharing about their personal experiences of success like there are today. Mm -hmm. And Temple Grandin was really right. the only resource and that didn't even really come out until the mid to late 90s. Right. She was the only one. And then um, there was this book I was reading called Loud Hands, um, Autistic People Speaking. And it's basically a book that was, uh, I believe, co-created by members of the Autism Self-Advocacy Network. And they were talking about how in the 90s, there were just so many doors shut for autistic adults to speak about right. their experience on their terms because right. there were these neurotypical researchers that were like, oh, well, you have a disability. You know, you you don't even have expertise on who you are because, you know, you're right, right. not capable of thinking intelligently. And I feel like the only reason people listen to Temple Grandin, I think partially is because she had a PhD. Well, and she you know, was articulate it, too. I well, mean, she, and she was did, very articulate, but but that's right. not to say that the other autistic adults weren't articulate. But but not. it's like, I think what I wonder is like people listen to Temple Grandin because, in my opinion, getting a PhD is the highest level of defiance against stigma, and it caused neurotypical people to reevaluate what their standard notion of autism is in terms of intelligence and disability and but, capability. Yeah. 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 Sure. And, and, and I think that, you know, that whole thing is beside the point, but, but I think that what I want to talk about is how parents are very aware of the potential of their child being marginalized and how that marginalization is going to impact that their child's ability to live a full life. And I think that that high pressure on the child to be normal it's the only form of control that they have because maybe parents feel like, well, I don't know how to educate society. I can't change society unless I go on social media, which not everybody does. And I think that there's this weird dichotomy. And I've talked about this with my mom where like she gets defensive of like, 
I did everything I could to help you. Don't tell me that all of the things I did to help you created shame around masking. Right. And and I try to tell her, look, like I see your good intentions. I'm grateful that there was money there for me to get all of that treatment. But I think the trauma for me, and I think the trauma that was probably even harder than the marginalization is the is this chronic fear that if any part of my true self showed, there'd be consequences. And then there was just mm -hmm. that autism burnout of like, sure. you know, so I think what I wonder is in the fear of marginalization, how can parents let go of that fear-based attachment to my child needs to be normal in order to empower their child to say, hey, it is not an accepting world, but that doesn't mean that you can't show up as you are. Right. You know, how, how can parents be more supportive in that direction? And, and what do parents need to let go in terms of their, mm -hmm. the fear mm -hmm. they hold to be able mm -hmm. to be that type of support person for their child. Right. Yes. This, this is something we're going to talk about later in the podcast, but um, just to, to go over some of the points that you talked about. Um, first of all, yeah, in the nineties, we didn't have any positive role models. And although also in the nineties, there was this movement that autism could be cured. Right. So there's a lot of misinformation out there about what autism was. Um, but, you know, just, just to answer your question briefly, you know, why do parents do what they do? I think for me, it was the fear that my child was going to be bullied. I wasn't, I mean, that, that was my primary concern. So whatever, um, behavior modifications or ther therapy or anything like that, I think that was the underlining, whether I realized that consciously or not, that was the motivating factor, right? I didn't want my child to be bullied. Right. And to live, you know, like you said, a healthy, normal life, whatever that meant. So um, a lot of it was my misinformation of, of this. And the other thing was not accepting my child for who they were at the time and just, you know, giving giving Josh the tools that they needed as they were able to comprehend these tools to be um, a successful, happy adult, ultimately. Mm hmm. Well, and if you think about it too, I mean, if you look at LGBTQ plus kids or mm -hmm. kids of color, oh, for I sure. mean, there are so many reasons why different groups of kids get bullied. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you look at, I mean, and it, and it's complicated and, and I don't want to speak I mean, for that group, but, you know, I think that some kids choose to hide themselves, you know, mask who they are. Masking mm -hmm. is not exclusively an autistic thing. No, masking for sure is a defense mechanism for anybody who has experienced marginalization on yes. any based on any type of identity. Yes. But th there comes a point where I think some people realize that I can't change who I am mm -hmm. and changing who I am is is actually creating more suffering than the marginalization itself. Or right. I mean the marginalization can be really bad, but mm -hmm. it's just, it's that I think that some people get to a point where they realize, okay, I am going to experience marginalization by being open about who I am. So mm -hmm. how do I develop the resilience right. and the inner strength and the window of tolerance to be able right. to show up 
and ultimately speak out against that marginalization so that it doesn't continue right. to happen. Which ultimately, is not easy. Yeah. Yeah. And and my when I look at this from an equity and inclusion perspective, if we are fighting for this desire for everybody to be normal, how are mm. we challenging ableism? Right, exactly. How are exactly. we challenging mm -hmm. transphobia, homophobia, racism? Right. If if the goal is to just stay silent and conform. Right. Um, and, and I think, and, and I'll just say this, I, I think some parents make that decision because it's a safe and familiar decision. And I think the parents that, that really teach their child to show up as they are, are parents that are very secure in their identity yes. as an advocate. Oh, sure. Yes. Um, and so when I think about it with my mom, you know, we were talking earlier about like, well, what is the core goal when a parent says, you know, I want you to be normal. And I think my mom's goal was, I, you know, make friends, reduce sure. the likelihood of bullying. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, she was afraid that I would get put into special education classes and, right. and reduce the quality of my education because of a label. Now, mm. today, I don't personally think that would happen because, you know, I think there's more awareness of neurodiversity. I think, you know, yeah. I don't know what IEPs were like in the 90s, but my sense is that there's a lot more nuanced understanding of, yeah. oh, this kid has learning needs, but they don't need to be in the special needs class with, you know, people with Down syndrome, people with severe autism, you right. know people with cerebral palsy that are severe needs, um, you know, maybe they need to be in more mainstream classes, but, you know, one that is co-taught with, mm -hmm. you know, an IEP right. caseworker. So, right. so I think that, yeah, I mean, back then, maybe there were fewer options. And when there are fewer options, that's all the more reason why that is such a, an extreme emotional attachment for parents. And I think right. that the the beauty of social media is there's no one way of living autism. And even oh, people sure. with severe nonverbal autism are thriving. They're able to work. They're able to express themselves. Um, and, and I think that those stories mm. give parents a greater perspective that there is a range of success in life that isn't oh, defined absolutely. by they have to fit in normal. And if they never fit in a normal, there's this process of grieving. Right. I think that, you know, I think my mom was a fantastic advocate and, you know, both of my parents wanted the best for me. Mm -hmm. I was the one that chose to challenge, you know, things. And I feel like over time, as I've grown as an advocate, as I've grown in my understanding of what autism is as an educator, as a prospective therapist, you know, I've come back to my parents and I've said, yeah. you know, these are the things that were culturally problematic about autism back when I was diagnosed. And it's really hard because it creates this fear and guilt that my parents did something wrong. And right. there have been plenty of points where they've gotten defensive. And sure. I think over time, and especially with this podcast, I think there's been a learning curve for them about, you know, okay, like we didn't do anything wrong. Like Nicole's not 
suffering greatly from right, right. whatever we did. And ultimately, if I look at it as, well, if those were the only resources that were available in the 90s, like I'm grateful that my parents did that. Uh, and I think it could be better. You know, it, it's no, like sure. how moving we, forward. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, I think it's how we reflect as educators. Like if we if we really drop the ball, you know, we reflect and, and we grow. You know, we as teachers are never static. And if Definitely we're static, yeah. ultimately, we we create adversity for our students and we create adversity for ourselves. Right. So that's the way that I look at uh, the cultural supportive understanding of autism is like where we were back then is where we needed to be at that time. And it was very progressive back then. But it needs to evolve into a more celebratory place of neurodiversity instead of, you know, this pressured expectation to be normal. And right. so, you know, I think now my parents are on board with that. And I think that, you know, the biggest thing that my parents are seeing is that if I leaned into that desire to be normal, I wouldn't have pursued any of my career paths in helping others. Autism has shaped my purpose in life. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, and now that I'm getting a, a graduate degree in counseling, it's it's shaped how I want to, you know, be professionally involved in helping people. I wouldn't be where I'm at if if I felt like the only way that I could be successful was to hide myself. Right. For and sure. so I don't know. I mean, I think when I look at my relationship with my parents, I think that there's a there's a learning relationship on both ends. They mm -hmm. did their part in what they thought was best to help me. And I right. do believe, you know, I, I and I I reflect on this a lot, like, wow, my parents loved me so much that they really fought for me to get what I deserved mm -hmm. and not feel like, well, she has autism, go put her in special education. Right. And then as an adult, I pay that education forward to them. And I say, you know, this is what I've learned and, and grown about regarding autism. And so I think that it's an interesting balance of the parents leading the child, the child leading the parent, and then also letting the autism community lead both the parent and the child. And I think that when we lean into that idea of normal, we are completely ignoring the wisdom of the autism community in favor of those with neurotypical privilege. Right, right. And so just to, to put a cap on this before we move on, I, th I think it's easier in a parent's mind, it's easier to help my one child, right? Um, with whatever these protective mechanisms that we overlay uh, upon our child, right? It's easier to do that than to fix society, mm -hmm. right? If society is the problem, which we're saying, you know, elements of society are, are, you know, have this mainstream perception of what is normal and that's what the harm, that's where the harm is, right? It's easier to protect my child than fix society. And so that's where we go. Right. We're just going to protect our child in whatever mechanisms that we can do, which is not necessarily helpful. Right. And so the the ultimate progression is to let our children flourish, no matter who they are, um, in a in a accepting society, in an accepting environment. Um, and that's that's the goal. But that's well, hard. And, and I'll say this, too, you know, because I, I don't have kids. Um, 
my husband's neurodiverse, not autistic, and I'm autistic. And so we're fairly certain we're going to have some sort of neurodiverse child. Right. And when I think about everything that I've learned in my own autism journey, and I think about what I would do differently to empower my child, mm -hmm. I think about what does it mean to be an anti-ableist parent? Right. And when we, and, and I get what you're saying, and, and I guess I want parents to know that if they're leaning on the idea of normal, there's, that doesn't make you a bad parent. Right. You're you're working with the knowledge that you know, and and you know some parents I think that are listening to this are brand new parents. Right. I mean, if I think about being you know 32 and having a child with a diagnosis I know nothing about, yeah, I mean I get it, and and I think that ultimately at the end of the day, if it comes from a good place of I love my child, and I'm fighting to do everything I can to help them. You know, even if the decisions are maybe, you know, right. reinforcing autism asking again, you didn't know any better. You had mm -hmm. good intentions. You loved your child. I mean, the fact that you love your child with that autism diagnosis is huge, mm -hmm. you know, so so don't you know, don't take on shame based on what we're we're talking about in this podcast. I think what. What I'm hoping parents take away from this is having a critical thinking mind about what normal yeah. is. And, and right. that's the point of this episode right. yes. is, is that idea of like, well, what is normal? Is it beneficial for us to pursue normal? And right. from an equity and inclusion perspective, normal is laced with so many systems of oppression that favor people with privilege. That can be racial privilege, um, heterosexual privilege, cisgender privilege, uh, you know, what else? Uh, male privilege, mm -hmm. neurotypical, able-bodied privilege. Mm -hmm. And so when I think about it, I think about, you know, how do I teach my child to step into their power of identity in a way that, that challenges the systemic oppression that reinforces ableism? And Going into normal, it does it it just reinforces ableism. Right. And right. so that that's my take on it. And unfortunately, there's not a lot of information out there about like what it means to be anti-ableist and the way that we learn what sure. it means to be anti-racist. But mm -hmm. that I that is a passion project that I definitely want to explore in a future season of this podcast. Um, what it what it means to be anti-ableist. What does it mean to be an anti-ableist mm. parent? And I think that, you know, with social media being able to share so many stories, we're starting to get there. Yeah. And that's what's awesome. Yeah. All right. So there are a lot of major root issues that define the perception of normal. So Gordon Gates says it is normal to fall into different ranges of diversity in different areas. It is normal for some people to be outside of the range of conventional social expectation and be outrageously different. So I don't remember if Gordon Gates talked about this, but one of the examples I remember hearing is it's actually becoming more normal to have different types of family units. So so the the illusion of normal is, is the white picket fence with the family of four and the parents are married. Right. Well, 
the rate of divorce is really high. And I can't even tell you as a teacher how many parents I had, like at least a third of my students had divorced right. parents. Yes. And then, you know, and and there is becoming a rise of open parents that, you know, are in genderqueer um, you know, so whether that be um, same sex marriages, um, you know, pansexual, transgender, non-binary. So there there is a tremendous amount of diversity. Um, and 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 if you think about it demographically, like if you go into certain communities, sometimes there's a parent that's not even in the picture and that's a norm in the community. Right. And so what can feel very abnormal to one community is very normal in another community. And, and I think that's what it is. Yeah. Right. And so, so normal has an implicit bias to it, which basically means mm -hmm. it's an unconscious belief about a certain group or, or a certain identity that a person has. And the way, and so, the way things should be, the way yeah, society should be, it's the way exactly. this should be. Yeah. yeah. So, so normal doesn't look at holistically where things not. are. And sometimes like what helps me out when I think of the idea of normal is when I struggle, I go, okay, maybe this isn't normal compared to my neurotypical peers, but is this normal if I compare it to the experience of my autistic peers? So an example would be you have an adult child on the autism spectrum who is struggling to be an independent adult. Is that normal um, of neurotypical adult standard? Well, it depends. I mean, there's been so many articles out there that talk about, you know, inflation making it very challenging for, you know, even neurotypical young adults and adults to move out of their parents' house and they'll right. often move back for financial reasons. But from the, I guess, the, the myth of what it means to be adult independent, you know, you, you move out after college and you're able to financially sustain yourself. And that's very mm -hmm. challenging for people with autism. So then parents get upset because they're like, well, that's not normal. But when you look at it from yeah. the experience of what is the overall commonality of being autistic and being an independent adult, that's mm -hmm. actually very normal. Right. It would be, I don't want to say abnormal, but there are fewer autistic adults who, you know, move out of their parents' place right out of college and be financially independent. Right. So again, it's that, it's that critical thinking of like, what lens are we perceiving normal and how is that particular lens of normal harming that person with autism? Mm -hmm. And how sense. is it affecting the way, you know, parents support a person with autism to be successful? Mm -hmm. So the root of normal is that people are often trapped in the smallness of their familiar little world, which is a big part of what we've been talking about. They do not make allowances for diversity and they tend to strike out unfairly against those who don't fit nicely within the comfortable boundaries of comfortable expectation. Perfectionism and normal membership is a way to make other people feel comfortable and not expand their worldview, which takes work and could create a lot of anxiety. And in my opinion, parents are burned out doing all this research, trying to figure out what works for their kid, trying to grow themselves to be better parents. 
So I can understand that taking on more education about this idea of diversity and challenging your critical thinking about equity and inclusion, unless that's something that you're interested in as a parent, that's a lot to ask sometimes. And parents feel like, you know, if they're burned out, their their root reaction is just stick with the status quo. And sometimes sticking with the status quo is a cultural response as well. Right. Right. I think before we go into kind of solutions things, I just to interject really here, really quick. Yeah, here, yeah. I think I think one helpful thing that I did not go through, but I can imagine how helpful this would be, would be to for parents to go into um, some kind of therapy where they're talking with other parents um, who have neurodiverse kids, mm-hmm. right? Just having that conversation and talking about, well, you know, my kid's struggling with this and this is, they're getting bullied in school and blah, blah, blah. Having that sense of community creates its own, what is it like to be normal within our group? See what I'm saying? It gives you perspective yeah. because you're hearing other people struggling with the same thing you're struggling with. And that creates this new sense of what quote unquote normal is or what, you know, you know, what, what we're all reacting against the same thing. How can we support each other? How can we listen to each other? Okay. I'm, I'm not alone in feeling this way. You know, what are our next steps? So all of that would be hugely pop popular or, um, helpful. Well, and and I'll add to that too. So my mom had made a really good friend uh, while I had newly gotten my autism diagnosis. And she's also a retired teacher. And she has a son on the autism spectrum who's my age. Um, He's definitely more severe needs and I am where I am. And my mom told me that there was this disconnect where her son and I had the same amount of therapy Mm. and, you know, we were the same age going, basically going through the same thing. And demographically we were also the same, you know, we were both Mm -hmm. uh, came from white suburban upbringings with, you know, enough financial resource to access, Mm -hmm. you know, therapy that wasn't covered by insurance. And so, you know, I remember that parent feeling very confused and upset. Well, why is my child still struggling and why is Nicole thriving? And I think at that time, there was no concept of autism being a spectrum. And and I do think, you know, uh, there, mm-hmm. there was talk about neurodiversity. And I do think Temple Grandin talked about the autistic brain and that idea of it being diverse. Um, but if you didn't access those resources, which most parents didn't, then there's that. It, it was just this black and white. You were either on the spectrum or you were not. You were severe special needs or you were normal passing. Right. And, and I think that this comes to two different factors. One is I do think it's helpful, you know, to find parents and, you know, autistic adults who, who walk the same path of life. And I also think that it's important for there to be some co-mingling because I remember, I can't tell you how many parents of child, children with severe autism, severe nonverbal autism that would come up to me in the nineties and the two thousands saying, well, how can my child be just like you? Right. And I remember feeling so uncomfortable at 12 years old getting those questions. Cause it's like, I don't know. I don't so know why I am. Not be able to the answer way that, I am. Yeah. 
oh yeah but you know you could you could feel the desperation and the fear and yeah. mm -hmm. um and i'll tell you guys this that i've read ito kadar's work ito mm -hmm. kadar is a uh he's an adult with nonverbal autism i've i've read naoki higashida's books he's also a man with nonverbal autism uh, I've read anthologies written by people with nonverbal autism. YouTube has given a voice to people with nonverbal autism. I've learned a lot yeah. by being exposed to people with nonverbal autism. And the relationships and the and the things I've learned from those people has majorly affected, you know, how I supported students with severe needs. And mm -hmm. It taught me, you know, wow, there is a tremendous amount of wisdom in these people. There's a there's a tremendous amount of eloquence, even though they're not able to express it in the way that I verbally can. And right. so I think that, you know, I had wondered if my mom had known about Ido Kadar in the 90s, granted, Ido Kadar is significantly younger than me, but like right. if somebody like Ido Kadar had existed mm -hmm. when I was diagnosed and there was this fear of like would nicole have severe special needs we don't know right but but if if my mom saw wow there's this nonverbal person with autism who has been successful does that give me hope that no matter where my child ends up on the autism spectrum that my child's going to be okay and then that doesn't create that fear of, oh, my God, it's not normal. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. you know, and, and so much of that fear response comes from the loss of normal. But like we were talking about earlier, there is no loss of normal. Right. It's the loss of normal based on the community and culture you grew up in mm -hmm. to shift to a normal culture that is within your tribe that you are now part of and, you know, tribe meaning commonality of people. Right. So you're shifting your, there's the loss of neurotypical normal into shifting about what the normal is for the autistic experience. And, and I think that that's, that's what's important to, to remember is that there is no loss of normal. There's just a transition into your definition of what normal is. And does that create grief? Sure. Does that create shame triggers? Sure. But does it ultimately lead you into a better place with more open-mindedness about what normal is? Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So the other thing, you know, that's really important. So I've I've thrown out the the term privilege a lot. And and I think that that word privilege is very triggering for people, you know, because mm -hmm. it, it creates this defensiveness of, well, you know, I don't have this or that. And uh, and and I, I've said time and time again that the concept of normal is always foundational on the base of privilege. Yeah. And 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 I think that if we're going to make change, we have to really be critical thinkers on that idea because people with privilege are the ones that dictate what those unspoken social rules of acceptance are. Right. And if we're gonna make those rules more inclusive and open-minded, we we can't give in to normal. Now, mm -hmm. if if the term privilege is something that is triggering for you, 
what Gordon Gates uses is the term socio-dominance. They mean the same thing. And basically what it means is when there is a dominant group, they are the ones that determine what is considered a social expectation. And the main source of autistic stigma is unfulfilled social expectations. And all of the social rituals that we conform to, to you know, gain that membership of normal is based on the logic of the dominant group. And, you know, I, I think that um, a good way to look at it. So right now uh, I'm, a, I'm a reflecting a lot about my white privilege as part of my, you know, journey as a teacher and as a counselor. And so, you know, a big part of, you know, being anti-racist as a white person is being able to reflect on what it means to be white, what it means to not have emotional attachment, you know, well, to not, to, to get your grievances out, to be able to, you know, have this kind of neutral acceptance of, you know, this is, this is my, this is my heritage. And then being able to kind of heal and being very perceptive of, oh, what are those unconscious biases that I have that is making me reinforce like white dominance? And what can I do differently? And those decisions then ultimately lead from small actions uh, to big actions that impact interpersonal and systemic things. And even if you can do that, that little self-reflection change, it makes a difference. So how does this relate to autism? It's the same way. It's that idea of constantly evaluating what it means to be normal, how able-bodied people created that myth of normal, right. and how able-bodied caregivers play into supporting that. And so doing that self-reflection of, okay, what does it mean to be able-bodied? How do I use that able-bodied privilege and that dominance to support not only my child, but people like my child to thrive? And how do I use that knowledge to be more inclusive and, and little by little tweaking the way I move through the world? And that makes a difference towards addressing ableism in society. And and I think when we when parents don't feel like they have that power, that's when they lean the most towards that fear of how can I make my child normal? Yeah. Um, another thing is unfulfilled social expectations align more with the medical model of disability, which believes that the person with autism is defective and needs to mm -hmm. be fixed to thrive in neurotypical society. This contrasts the social model of disability, which states that a person with autism is incapable of thriving in a neurotypical society unless social expectations change to be more equitable and adaptive to the autistic needs. Patty Ashley also talks about the cultural root of core shame, and she says current shame research has revealed a common experience of not enoughness in our Western culture. This blew me away because yeah, an interesting way of thinking about it. Well, yeah, because it's like when I when I have tried to heal my shame and I try to heal it from like neurotypical ignorance, 
I don't even think about like just the Western view of what it means to be autistic and how that affected my mental health. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and, and, and it's so big, it's so macro that we don't, we don't see it. Right. And because it is, we yeah. don't see it, it feels so personal. And so mm-hmm. that's why I encourage that, that critical thinking about the big picture, because that critical thinking about the big picture prevents that personalization of I'm not enough because of my identity and I need to fix myself because of who I am. And it also, I think, empowers parents where they don't have to live in that fear of, oh my God, if my child doesn't do this, this, or this, they're, they're going to be exiled or ostracized or whatever. And, and if we see the big pictures, we can, we can walk through the world more mindfully and strategically so that we're not letting that that weight of normal rack our mental health. Yeah. So in particular, present day society is characterized by a constant striving to attain perfection and live up to societal expectations. Western culture is always expecting people to strive to be something greater than themselves, whether that comes from the standard of beauty financial and professional achievement, or athletic and creative talent. This can have a major impact in the way people with autism strive to be normal and how neurotypical support members reinforce that goal. So another thing that's really important to look at for parents is, you know, how has Western culture reinforced your desire of constantly striving to attain perfectionism for yourself? And how do you project that onto your child. You know, so again, it's like these things are reinforced by these big pictures that are not helpful for our mental health. And it's not helpful for the people that we're we're trying to support. So culture plays a really big role. Now, you know, for this specifically, we're really focusing on Western culture because you know, we're both from the United States. Patty Ashley, as far as I know, is from the United States. And if she's not, she might be in Europe. Um, but, you know, it's also important to consider, you know, what is the Middle Eastern culture of belief? What is the Asian culture of belief? What is the African culture of belief? What is the Latin American culture of belief? What is the indigenous culture of belief? You know, um, I, I mean, it's when I read about, you know, the Western culture expecting that constant striving to attain perfection, you know, I've I've read stories written by uh, Asian parents of children with autism that feel that fear of, you know, that that pressure of perfection and that constant striving. And so, again, it's like if we're aware that those influencers are there, we can mindfully release ourselves from them and find a new way to live that's more liberating for us. Yeah. And and just to, you know, put my two cents in before we continue, I think yeah. an- another thing about Western culture is um, it's not just about attaining perfection, which is a kind of interesting concept, but it's progress, right? It's mm-hmm. this idea of progress. We're always progressing. Progress and the drive to do better and to be better and to improve and to invent and to all and the and these drives of things is the characterization of western culture western culture is progressing 
Western well, culture is advancing. And so wait, hang on. And yeah, so yeah, what, yeah. what happens then is um, from going back to what we're talking about, well, my child isn't progressing. My child isn't advancing. My child is regressing or, you know, has these, these other elements of it. And that creates this, um, this trauma of a parent. Well, my child isn't fitting into this notion of progress in Western society. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and pace, you know, mm-hmm. was uh, with the advancement of technology. I mean, we, I think we can agree as teachers. I mean, the impact technologies had on our students and, you know, as a millennial who I think really got the beginning brunt of technology and was kind of the mm-hmm. guinea pig of its impact. I mean, it's like we are we are conditioned by technology to expect instantaneous change, you know, and sure. and I think that our mindset with therapy is like, well, you know, if I do one therapy treatment, right, right, I want right. to see progress, you know, and, yes. and, that and that's can be very not slow. Yeah. Well, exactly. And, and um, I'm in a contemplative uh, mindfulness based um, psychology program for my master's. And, uh, and I'm, I'm taking a class called psychology of meditation. And one of the, the things I remember, and I forget the resource, but there was a, there was a whole conversation about mindfulness and pace and how um, we have this emotional attachment to the concept of pace. The idea of like, even if things are slow, we wanna feel like things are moving forward. And and I think, you know, I remember that and thinking like, wow, parents get so upset about the whole one step forward, two steps back kind of thing where it's like, well, we don't wanna go backwards or we don't want things to stay the same. From a mindfulness perspective, and you know, and I don't want to. I'm not a parent. I, I don't have that particular lived experience. All I can say is my perspective, and maybe it'll h- help a parent who's open to it. Sure. But I think that when things in our life that that create adversity don't change, that is an opportunity for the person to develop more mindfulness, more growth, uh, more acceptance about the present moment. Yes. Because if we, if we have, basically what this resource said is our attachment to pace creates suffering. And that's related to perfectionism as well. If we're constantly striving to be perfect, that's an attachment to pace because, you know, um, and sometimes like walking meditation can help because it's that idea of like, oh, we're moving, but we're moving very slowly. Mm-hmm. And just because your child is, you know, on the surface, not progressing, doesn't mean that there isn't some kind of progress. And, and I think right, if parents sure. look at it as, well, if, the, if, the, if my child isn't making progress, then how can I make progress? You know, and we had talked about this in a previous episode about how you had a, a, a self-reflective moment of, if I'm going to be a better parent to my child and I'm not going to fly off the handle and be upset and be stressed out, I got to change. Yes, exactly. And so if parents look at it as I'm not really seeing change in my child, but look at what that triggered change in me, then there's there's this awareness of, oh, there's change. And, and the other thing is we cannot define pace based on what we see externally, because we have no idea 
what that child is going through internally, especially if they're right. nonverbal. Right. There could be tremendous amount of internal change that that child is not able to express physiologically. Mm -hmm. Or maybe there isn't change because that therapy isn't a good fit for that child. Right. You know, and, and so I don't know. I, I think that uh, the theme of this episode is when we get the emotional attachment to normal and the pace of, of what it takes to get to normal and how normal is a perfectionist privileged stance. Right. How is that creating suffering for the parent? And how is that creating suffering for the child? And how is that breeding core shame for both parties? Right. And and just to, to another thing to think about before we move on, it's like uh, when we put our, when we have um, our child in therapy, right? Just to go on to that mindset of progress and, and, and time and all this kind of stuff, we're expecting that therapy is going to quote unquote fix our child, right? We, we don't put our child into therapy to fix ourselves. It's not self-reflective. It's my child has this issue. I don't have this issue, right? So, you know, why isn't therapy working? Why isn't this working, right? That, that's this notion. It's all, it's all interwoven, right? So having that perspective of and challenging what normal is, is a step to saying, we're in this journey together and I'm here to help you, my child, to um, a live live a, a ha happy and healthy lifestyle, whatever that means for you and whatever yeah. that ability is for you. Well, and you might not even be able to have that foresight until later in your parenting journal journey. Exactly. And, par exactly. and part of that has to do with just, you know, at your age with, you know, having a young adult child, like you're more mm -hmm. of a veteran in the experience right. of raising a child with autism than somebody mm -hmm. with a two-year-old who just got diagnosed. Correct. And yeah, so there's somebody, a little right. more mm -hmm. familiarity and comfort. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, and, and the other part of it is like in the time frame that, you know, Josh has been an adult, that I've been an adult, the resources for autism has changed so much. Absolutely. And there's so, a lot of things out there. Yeah. Oh my God. And, and, you know, the, I'll just share a resource. Asperger's Experts is mm -hmm. a, an organization created by an adult on the autism spectrum serving parents. I mean, that's what people were probably wanting back in the 90s. It's, 100%. you know, so so I think that uh, that's kind of, and it's so hard to say this because I, I know that parents struggle so much. I think that it's so important I don't know, maybe my approach is if I were in that position, I would really develop um, a mindfulness practice around the present moment mm -hmm. and having this faith that if I don't have the answers now, I will have the answers later, even if it's far down the road. And it's hard to believe that when you're living in a state of fear and stress all the time, oh, for sure. but, it, but it's the truth mm -hmm. that, you know, um, and then sometimes you're... It, Finding something that works might take your child advocating to say, this is what I need. Right. And, and hopefully and I, that's what, that's what it leads to. Right. Yeah. Ultimately. Yeah. And, and I think that, that, that fear comes from parents being afraid that they're letting their child down. It, it's that, that core shame of I'm a bad parent. I'm doing harm mm -hmm. to my child. I've, you know, uh, my child is suffering and I feel powerless to do anything. Right. 
That's and a good one right there. every parent goes through that, but it doesn't mm-hmm. mean that you have to chronically live your life in that state of mind. That's where I think that that ability to, to have a mindfulness practice, to be able to kind of do that critical thinking about the big picture, to evaluate your relationship with normal mm-hmm. and pace is a way that you're caring for yourself as you are in the process of caring for your child. And exactly. you should never ne- neglect caring for yourself in the effort of caring for your child. So if you go to therapy as you're you know, trying to ruminate on like, well, what do I do to help my kid? Well, don't forget to care for you. You're right. You know, because right. that, that plays a major role in helping your kid is making sure you're taken care of. Absolutely. Absolutely. When you, when you have your kid in therapy, you really have two people in therapy, right? Yeah. And I think that's yeah. a good thing. Okay. Yeah. Let's, this transitions very nicely into um, some recommendations that Gordon Gates have for parents. And so he says that parents, teachers, and therapists can either set up a person with autism to have stigma resilience or worsening stigma. And this has to do with fostering secure attachment, which impacts the interpersonal bridges that we've been talking about that support the development of an authentic identity. So supportive parents can make a positive difference in anyone's life, but parenting a child with autism is fraught with challenges, as we've talked about, that make it difficult to be consistently available and supportive. There's a whole bunch of factors that can be in part of this, right? It can be compounded by financial problems, divorce, we've talked about. Uh, Parents have their own mental health issues that they're dealing with. Witnessing domestic abuse, being a victim of discrimination, um, highly sensitive parent struggles, sensory and emotional overwhelm when the child is in constant distress can be a factor, and then lack of resources and information on how to care for a child with autism. So parents can also unknowingly create ruptures in these interpersonal bridges by encouraging the child to mask their autism. We've talked about this, right? Stigma, cloaking, or performative normality, quote unquote, acting normal, just act normal as a way to fit in with neurotypical peers and to avoid experiencing adversity. Parents may feel that they are supporting their child to thrive in a neurotypical society by giving them these social skills training. But what actually happens is it causes stress for on the person with autism to fit in and be normal, even when the expectation of normal isn't met. And this is often encouraged with a goal to fit into neurotypical society rather than encouraging the autistic child to forge their own path that supports their neurodiversity. Easier said than done, for sure. Because, you know, we, you know, just be yourself, just be yourself, but just be yourself. Well, what if people don't like me? What do I do then? You know, what if I'm bullied because I'm not, I don't fit in with my other peers? You know, it's not easy. No, it's not. I I think that my speaking from personal experience, um, the way that I would look at it is like, even when I masked my autism, I was still bullied because I was a anime nerd that dressed like, I don't know, I I called myself a tomboy. I was not a fashionable or athletic tomboy. Uh, I liked video games, was not good at video games. I cried all the time. Um, Mm. I played the trumpet. I was an art geek. I mean, it was like there, and, and I was socially awkward and, and those are things that even neurotypical kids get bullied for. And so I felt like 
my feeling was I was inevitably going to get bullied whether or not people knew I was autistic. Mm -hmm. And I do think that people unconsciously sensed my differences that were rooted in my autism, even though it wasn't out in the open or, um, you know, I was open about my autism in middle school and high school, but I don't think my peers really understood what autism was or what it meant. They just saw that I didn't really fit the norm exactly. and that created that created bullying. Mm -hmm. So I think that like as an adult and more importantly, since being a teacher, um, I think that I do I am I up, you know, am I like completely forgiving that I was bullied? No, you know, I, I'm I'm still a little annoyed by some of the issues that led my bullies to bully me and some of them were my friends but at the same time i think just understanding the psychology of teenagers i'm like okay i can understand why they did this and um and i think that like being able to have relationships with teenagers who like i'm sure there were, i had bullies in my classroom i didn't know it it didn't make me love them any less as students and I, I think that that gave me perspective that there's just this maturity journey that happens. And, Definitely, and I yeah. think that um, bullying does present a, a very empowering opportunity to self-advocate. And so I think that, you know, obviously we don't want to look at bullying as opportunities. Um, at the same time, I think bullying does encourage people to stand in in their power of their authenticity uh, for whatever reason that they are being bullied. And so I think that rather than, you know, oh, well, what can what can I do to make my child avoid getting bullied? Well, they're going to get bullied or they're going to experience challenges that, well, if I don't conform to peer pressure, I'm going to get bullied. Like the threat of bullying is always there. Mm -hmm. And the threat of not being in the normal group is always there, whether or not you're autistic. And I think it's important for parents to say, if this shows up in your life, what do you do to rise to the occasion instead of being mm -hmm. afraid of, well, what can I do to avoid this? Or what right. can I do to reduce this? And and right, I can't right. tell you how many, you know, and I, the peers that bullied me, they were being bullied. Like, sure. it, it's just, it's, I hate to say that it's part of the teen experience, but like, it's just like, it kind of is. Though. Yeah, I know. It's just like, because, because kids are just so emotional and they're not logical problem solving thinkers quite yet. So, and they're, yes. Yeah. So and that's empathy, really empathy takes it. time. Empathy takes time. Not every kid has, is empathetic. Right. Right. And so, right. Um, yeah. And, and I'll add this too. So it's like, I think my takeaway from it is like, should kids be more open-minded and accepting to differences? Absolutely. But, but is it reasonable and realistic to believe that not everybody is an emotionally mature place to get there? Yeah. Right. Um, should adults be uh, creating the norm of, well, if you're going to be successful, you got to be normal? I vehemently disagree with that. Because when I was being bullied and I didn't understand why, and, and maybe there was a part of me that knew that it was because I was autistic, 
I needed to go to those adults in my life for them to say, you're okay, okay. or here's how you overcome it for, for, for the, the adults in my life to be like, oh, you're going through bullying. Well, if you don't want to experience bullying or if you don't want to experience adversity, you better not be open about yourself. That is the most damaging thing somebody Mm -hmm. can say. Because, because it's that, a long-term impact, yeah. Well, exactly, because it, it teaches the young person to constantly live in fear of being open about who they are. And ultimately, the the bullying based on identity difference is really a microcosm of what ends up happening when you get into the real world, when you experience right. ignorance in the workplace, when you experience you know, discrimination in other places. And so you need those adults that have a critical thinking lens about the idea of normal, that celebrate neurodiversity, that challenge ableism to teach that child what it means to do that, because the child's not going to intrinsically know how to do that. Mm -hmm. And so that's the other issue I have about leaning towards, well, if you're going to be normal, you have to be this way, because it's not teaching resilience in the face of adversity, it doesn't and teach it, self-advocacy. It doesn't teach expression. And most importantly, it's not teaching the child with autism to be an agent of systemic change. There you go. So <laughs> I'll, I'll get off my soapbox. This brings, up, brings us to the ways in which teachers and therapists can create core shame and invalidation trauma for people with autism. What a great segue. According to Gordon Gates, a lot of therapeutic and educational approaches that support a person with autism are founded on the basis of behaviorism. Behaviorism is the theory that humans and animals can be explained in terms of conditioning without appeal to thoughts or feelings, and that some mental conditions are best treated by altering behavior patterns. Now, this is not an episode where we're going to be talking about, you know, the pros and cons of ABA therapy. But what I will say is applied behavior analysis or ABA therapy is the core of it is behaviorism. Mm -hmm. Um, Whether knowing it or not, these services encourage performative normality and stigma cloaking as a way to fit into neurotypical society. This doesn't necessarily resolve the core shame that the person with autism has about being different. And it doesn't teach the person with autism to feel empowered in their neurodiversity. Care services can also create invalidation trauma because of a certain bias about the goal of curing or fixing behavior. And this goes back to that idea of pace, that the pace of fixing somebody's behavior, which again is rooted in behaviorism, uh, that has a bias because it's, well, how fast can this person get to being normal? Well, what is this big abstract concept of being normal Well, what, like in what subset of our world are you aiming for normal? Are you aiming for normal on the basis of being a white middle-class suburban setting? You know, yeah. Cause it's like, well, if you go way broad about normal, it's like, how, how do you even meet that? But anyway, um, but, but that, that idea of normal, you know, it creates invalidation trauma, Um, because of a certain bias about the goal of curing or fixing behavior. And they can also infantize the person with autism, um, which I will say, you know, every time my autistic behavior was challenged, even as an adult, 
there's that feeling of infantization, um, which isn't necessarily like using the baby talk towards a person with autism. Right. It's the idea of unsolicited social skills coaching. Mm. And in my opinion, and I don't know, I don't, th this might be a controversial hot take, but in my opinion, sometimes people feel like it's easier to give me unsolicited social skills advice rather than addressing their own ignorance or their stereotypical bias on autism. And, and then if I call them out on that or call them in, then it's um, defensive. Yeah. It, the, then the defensive response is, well, you don't understand social cues. So let me teach you. Right. That is a form of infantization mm -hmm. because you're invalidating their their innate social emotional intelligence, either because you're ignorant that people with autism can be socially emotionally intelligent, but also because you're using that stereotype as a scapegoat to avoid taking responsibility for your own social emotional blind spots. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so Cascades of relationship failure often take place not due to any deficiency in either person, but because one or both lean on their own conventions of knowledge or supposed expertise rather than putting curiosity first and listening to the other with an open mind. It's kind of what I was talking about earlier. Yeah. I think that when people get challenged on their bias, they get defensive and they villainize the other person sure. or they... Sure. Or they say, well, you don't understand this or, you know, use that kind of marginalized identity to undermine their intelligence. And and what that does is it pre it prevents that open minded conversation of, oh, maybe I don't know about this. Or even if the person with autism needs to learn something, well, what about can learning be mutual? Why does the learning have to be all on one person? Right. Well, the stigma is that, you know, the, that person is deficient in some way. And well, so the, exactly. other, the, the assumption is the other person is not deficient, right? They're mainstream. They're um, in the ableist world, right? You need to come up to my area because you need to be fixed. I don't need to be fixed. Yeah. Well, and, and I think uh, even when we're dealing with like neurotypical kids, I think teaching is the same way. It's, it's very much based on ageism. Like, mm -hmm. well, you need to be at my level because I'm Correct. the authority. Correct. And what I always do, you know, if I'm addressing a serious concern with a student is I always try to seek to understand. And when there is a restorative conversation, I say, here's what I learned. Here's what I'm yes. going to do differently next time. So then the, yes. the child doesn't feel like it's a burden on like, there's a problem with them. And they're mm. the ones that need to be fixed. I mean, unless it's like a major disciplinary issue, but but even then, I think really good people in authority are very aware that there's like a very tender, vulnerable, emotional piece to the equation and being able to kind of have it be this like mutual learning experience rather than this like, you know, oh, well, I know all the rules and you don't and you violated the rules, right. you know, exactly. That's just not how that works. And honestly, like, just because we were teenagers doesn't mean we know everything about the teenage experience or what sure. teenagers of that generation are going through. So I think sure. it's important to be humble in that mm -hmm. way. And I think humbleness is part of being open-minded mm -hmm. of like, maybe I, maybe there are things I don't know. What, what can I learn from this opportunity? 
Um, all right. So then uh, let's see. Um, caregivers that notice low levels of public acceptance suggest that better public relations will address the issue. And this is the goal of behaviorism-based treatment. And again, um, that, that when when autistic people are basically defined and valued based on their behavior, that takes a major mm -hmm. toll on their mental health and it, and it mm -hmm. breeds shame. Um, so there's a quote in Patty Ashley's book by Maurice Merleau-Ponty, who says, there is said to be a wall between us and others, but it is a wall we built together. Interesting. Interpersonal bridges can be ruptured in the classroom when a teacher gets frustrated with an autistic behavior. The teacher's usual response comes from disciplining the child, publicly humiliating the child, or schooling the child on social skills development, which again, these are all behaviorism tactics. And I guess when I say teachers, I usually mean uh, general educators, not always necessarily special educators. Right. Um, many teachers unconsciously take the behaviorism approach as a way to address the autistic child's behavior, mainly to benefit their emotional grounding and classroom management. And again, I, I think that's a really important point that when our goal is to fix the child's behavior, it's not always primarily in benefit of the child, even though we say it is, it's always well, if this if this behavior goes away, does it make me as the caregiver feel safe? Does it make me feel grounded? Does it make me feel like I can do my duties as a caregiver? Um, or that and, they've made you know, progress, right? Yeah, exactly. Or like as a parent, you know, unconsciously, the you know, if you're like, oh, uh, I'm afraid of my kid getting bullied. I'm afraid of my kid being put in special education. Mm -hmm. And and all of those actions are first and foremost about taking care of your fears before taking care of the child. Because right. what you think is going to solve your fear as a parent might not actually be beneficial for that child. Right. Um, and this kind of goes, you know, every as you're speaking about these things and um, things that are symbolic of what people on the, the spectrum struggle with. I mean, this goes back to earlier episodes, the stimming fidgeting episode, right? That yeah. can lead to shame. Uh, the meltdown shutdowns and self-harming behavior leads to shame. I mean, all of this thing, all of these things kind of lead into what we've been talking about. Yeah, that that is such a good point because it's like um, when we were talking about, you know, oh, well, if my child stims in public, well, are they going to get bullied? Are they not exactly. going to get a job? Right. But if if we if we look at like, okay, what benefits an autistic child over what benefits the fears of the parent? Exactly. Then it shifts from, mm -hmm. you know, being afraid of, oh, well, what are the consequences of my child stimming to, uh, mm -hmm. well, how can I support my child to use stimming as a form of self-regulation? Exactly. That, that, that decision is ultimately about the child's mental health over the fear of what are people going to think of my child or what are they going to think of me? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So that goes into, you know, healing core shame then is a complex proce process. Speaking of pace, it's not going to happen overnight. A person with autism should seek out a therapist that can help that support them to work through the issues of core shame. 
And so we have some recommendations based on Patty Ashley and uh, Gordon Gates, and we're going to give you some of those now. So Gordon Gates, um, well, one of, one of the things that they say is the goal of shame-informed therapy is to rebuild the authentic self. Okay, what does that look like for a person with autism, for example? So shame-informed therapy workbook has a lot of exercises that a person can do on their own or with the therapist. In that example, there's 51 different activities and exercises in the book meant to heal core shame. Um, the four R's of that is recognize shame hidden behind the store, respect how the story uh, creates illusion of safety, regulate in the dance of crow regulation, and restory an authentic, safe experience of living freely, right? Um, the exercise is called Shamed Informed Hero's Journey. I like that. Mm -hmm. This book has a lot of fantastic information that played a significant role in the healing of my issues with shame. Even though the language is specifically geared towards therapists working with shame and clients, I got a lot out of the book. Uh, you know, as somebody trying to heal my own shame, I'm fairly certain I'll use this book as a future therapist. And I think it would benefit both autistic people and the therapists that work with them. Right. Okay. So Gordon Gates also recommends some steps to address shame and stigma through two acronyms. So the first one is the NAB acronym, and the second one is the AFTER. All right. So let's talk about NAB. So NAB is notice it, accept it, remember to breathe, and to begin work on it. So it's noticing or naming the stigma uh, that's occurring, kind of identifying, okay, this is what's happening, except that the stigma is there rather than trying to deny or fight it off. So acceptance does not mean resigning ourselves to what happens next. It just simply means that we accept what is happening in the moment without resistance, denial, or rationalization. This puts the person with autism in a position to make their next move with this wisdom or clarity, right? Breathing allows us to recenter and ground ourselves. And the, uh, the final B is to work, begin to work with the resources that you have to bounce back from a stigmatic encounter. Okay, so the AFTER acronym is activating behavior, carefully choosing what we focus on, thought retooling, exposure, radical acceptance, and re-imaging. All right, so the activating behavior is creating circumstances that make us feel safe, making the environment more accommodating, rather than conforming to a neurotypical world, right? We focus our efforts on doing things that are healthy, restorative, or focusing on healing the root cause of shame with a therapist, shifting away from preservation and panic attacks. Thought retooling, um, cognitive behavior therapy techniques to reframe our perception of ourselves and our stigma around us. So black and white thinking, catastrophizing, fortune telling, should thinking, etc. Exposure is uh, choosing to intentionally enter into the world rather than avoiding it for fear of experiencing stigma. Arming, arming ourselves with the tools to help us build our window of tolerance for adversity and bouncing back from stigma. Okay, the radical acceptance, accepting our internalized shame and acknowledging the external factors that caused it, empowering ourselves to be free of stigma and practicing forgiveness. Patty Ashley believes that perfectionism and shame are intrinsically connected. Because of this, it's helpful for people with autism to use workbooks that focus on perfectionism. Our previous podcast episode focused on the connection between autism and perfectionism. The books we recommended for that were 
Making Peace with Imperfection by Dr. Elliot Cohen, The CBT Workbook for Perfectionism by Sharon Martin, and The Perfectionism Workbook by Taylor Neuendorp. I also cannot recommend enough The Healing Otherness Handbook by Stacey Reicherzer. This book helped me to understand the issues of normal and othering that caused my core shame. The book really helped me to step into my power and set boundaries with stigmatic interactions. Right. And another way to heal core shame and reclaim the authentic self is by unmasking autism. So we did a episode with this on this topic and referenced Unmasking Autism by Dr. Devin Price. This was a great book on the topic of unmasking and also provides journaling exercises, which I'm a big fan of, on how to unmask. Finally, we did previous podcast episodes on autism, anxiety, and depression. We referenced two of Nick Dubin's books, Asperger's Syndrome and Anxiety and Autism Spectrum and Depression. These are also great books that address ways to heal shame that causes anxiety and depression. He also wrote a book called Asperger's Syndrome and Bullying, which can also be a great resource for addressing shame. Somatic therapy has also made a very huge difference in healing my core shame. Overcoming shame involves mental, emotional, and physiological healing. Somatic therapy and craniosacral can soothe the nervous system and heal the polyvagal system in order to develop resilience against stigma. Somatic therapy can also, has also helped me to develop stronger boundaries and become more assertive against stigma. All right, so let's talk about what parents, teachers, and therapists can do to support people with autism and not unintentionally create interpersonal bridge, bridge ruptures. Okay, so continually update yourself on autism because the information about autism can be dated, we talked about this, and may not paint the, the whole picture of what it truly is. Seek out resources created by people with autism. Talk to people with autism that are thriving in their personal and professional lives in an unmasked way. Educate yourself on what autism stigma is, including how autism stigma exists in parenting and therapeutic practices. Uh, practice authentic listening to the autistic person's uniqueness and experiences rather than pressuring them to practice performative normality or just being normal. Stop making social skills primary focus of overcoming stigma and shame. According to Gordon Gates, social skills training causes people with autism to have their fragmented social perceptions reinforced. Social behaviors are an emergent property of our biological state, then they are the skills and social training. Okay, and then lastly, care for people with autism should also accommodate so black indigenous people of color or BIPOC right. and people. Thank you. And then LGBTQ plus people, as with the shame of not being normal can also be on the basis of race, gender, identity, and sexuality. Equity and inclusion trainings can also be very helpful. Yeah, so that last point is really important because I've heard a lot of, or I guess I've read a lot of articles written by autistic people of color and LGBTQ plus people who say that, um, well, at least especially for autistic people of color and immigrants, uh, immigrant families that have an autistic person that the services can be very biased towards like white Western beliefs. And sense. so, uh, you know, if the white Western bias is a very big part of that, that can create a lot of shame. So for example, the whole idea of um, lack of eye contact, if, mm. if culturally, like, let's say that we have an 
Asian immigrant family. And the norm in that Asian family is you don't make eye contact because that's a form of respect. But in Western culture, that can also be seen as an autistic trait because in Western culture, you're supposed to look at people to make eye contact. And so that can create a, a very confusing social education for that particular autistic person of color, because right. it's like, well, I thought that I was doing it the right way based on my culture. And so I, that's why I think that uh, there needs to be that that understanding of bias and then having autistic families of color being able to contribute to say, here's how we can make those evaluations and therapies more inclusive. Right. Um, the other thing that I will add, because you were you brought up a point about, you know, seek out resources created by people with autism. Mm -hmm. I think it's very important for parents to get out of their comfort zone of what specific person of autism they're seeking for support. So I remember when I was diagnosed, so Temple Grandin was the only public autistic figure that anybody could reference. And and I think that like Temple Grandin is the type of person that's very grounded in her identity of what it means to be autistic. I don't Definitely. feel like she talks about her autism from this place of superiority of like, oh, I'm autistic no. and look what I can do. She, you know, she has a PhD. She is a professor. Um, she's She's been an innovator in her field. Um, it, you know, but I think she she's very humble about who she is. And she's very uh, factual about like, here are my strengths and struggles as a person with autism. But my mom and various parents seeing Temple Grandin at that time were very like, oh my God, Temple Grandin is this amazing person. And I want my child to be like Temple Grandin. And just my, like her. Well, and it's like, and then if, if my child's not like Temple Grandin, then my, you know, that's going to be a failure. And it's like, well, Temple Grandin is not the the milestone of what it means to be successful living with autism. And the other thing is like, you know, don't look at these overachieving people with autism as like the, the, the goal of treatment. The standard, right, the standard, um, yeah. You know, I think like to me, a really good baseline example is Asperger's experts and Danny Raid, because, you know, so Danny Raid created this uh, organization, this educational organization about autism when he was about 30 years old, I want to say. But leading up to that, he had so many struggles when it came to adult independence and picky eating, socializing, mental health. And it, it, it took a while for him to get there. And I think that, you know, Danny Raid is, is very successful. Danny Raid is also not Temple Grandin. He's not somebody with a PhD. He's not somebody who works for a prestigious university. Does that make Danny Raid any less successful as a person with autism? Does it make Danny Raid any less successful because it took him a long time to figure out what, well, a long time in normal standards right. of what it means to be an independent adult and have a career? No, he's perfectly successful. You know, if you look at uh, Ido Kadar, Naoki Higashida, they're public. You know, they're published authors. They're nonverbal. Um, Carly Fleischman had her own um, had her own YouTube channel for a bit, and she's nonverbal. You know, um, and 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 then there are some people with severe special needs, 
where, you know, just being able to engage in the community, you know, with on a group field trip is a form of success. And so I think it's important mm -hmm. that when parents and adults with autism are looking at like what success on the spectrum looks like, that we're getting educated on a diverse range of viewpoints of what success on the autism spectrum looks like. And, and more importantly, I think that verbal mild needs, people with autism tend to dominate the conversation of what it means to be successful living a life with autism. And we don't always go to the people with nonverbal autism unless we have a person with nonverbal autism in our lives to see what success looks like for them. And so uh, I think that if we're able to see it holistically, what does it mean to be successful on the autism spectrum? Then we we don't live in that fear or the high expectation of like, I'll never be Temple Grandin because you know I live at home and I struggle with my mental health, right? You know that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So, um, and YouTube's great for that. You know there are so many fantastic people living with autism of many different age groups that are putting themselves out there on the internet sharing their experiences. So it's not going to take a lot of effort and energy to find those people. All right, so let's reflect on everything that we've learned. So first, let's talk about how striving for normal is linked to perfectionism, core shame, and stigma. And, and we did kind of answer this question earlier, but just to kind of recap from my perspective, you know, parents have a lot of fear about people with autism not being able to assimilate into normal society. And I do think at least back in the 90s, a lot of organizations were capitalizing on that fear. Um, you know, oh, and, and, and it's not necessarily like a specific organization was capitalizing on that fear of like, well, you need to use our therapy. But I think it was like this movement mm -hmm. where, you know, so many universities and organizations were basically putting out advertisements, print and commercials that were saying like, your child is held hostage by autism and you're going to be financially ruined and, right, right, right. you know, and, and you're going to experience a divorce. Well, okay. How is that any different than telling a child with autism that you will never have friends, a significant sure. other or a job? It, it's like this, this catastrophizing mm -hmm. that autism will devastate your life. And, and I'm not going to deny like, People do go through a lot of financial adversity, you know, caring for a child with autism. And, and I do think marriages are strained, but that should not be the reason why you treat autism. Right, right. Like that, you know, you, you shouldn't aim to support a person because of a fear that who they are is going to create ruin for you. Um, yeah. and, and, and we can't give power to those organizations that put that information out there. Uh, granted, I'm not going to villainize anybody who believed in that back in the 90s because people, there was a lot of ignorance about autism back then. Sure. Um, anyway, so all of this fear of assimilating into normal society, is that even possible? You know, that can do with the fear of that rejecting social acceptance, mental health, adult independence, not only for the child, but also the parent. Um, and the parent can also have core shame related to their personal adversity therefore putting vicarious expectations on the child 
as a way to heal their core shame. So I don't know if there's anything else you want to bring up related to this topic, because I think we talked about it a lot earlier in the episode. Mm-hmm. So, Do you have yeah. any other... Yeah, yeah, I mean, if if the question is how can you know um, parents release their child to be normal, right? It's it's the you know we did talk about this. You know, it's embrace your child as they are, let and let go of the idea uh, that you had of your child before you knew that they were neurodiverse, right? Because as as a parent, we always have we have these oh you know my my child is going to be this and it's going to be a doctor, lawyer, whatever expectations that we had. And then they come in the world and it's like, okay, this is, this is a new challenge, right? So kind of, you, you're just letting go of what this um, idea that you had, right? And accept them for who they are today. Actually, um, so I had a coworker at my previous school who had, uh, she has a preteen son on the autism spectrum. And we were talking about, um, I don't know, her parenting journey. And she said, I never think it's okay to grieve your child because they have autism, but you grieve the loss of what it means to be on the normal, quote unquote, parenting journey. Because, you know, and mm-hmm. and, and parenting is hard for everybody. Yes, no matter but, who. Yeah, but yeah. I think that what what really happens when when a child gets a diagnosis of any kind, and that could be autism, Down syndrome, cerebral palsy, sure. cancer, uh, anything that threat you know that can create compromises for you know physical and mental health. What that does is it is it takes away the parents' feeling of predictability, mm-hmm. and. And now that's not to say that it's not a normal parenting journey because that right. is a very normal parent experience for, you know, kids who have the same diagnoses. But yeah, I agree. It's 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 the 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 grieving of a predictable mm-hmm. cultural milestone journey yes. of what it means to be a parent. Exactly. Um and and the perception that the parenting journey is going to be arduous, the parents going to suffer, uh, that there's no way out. Um, and so this parent said, I think that you need to grieve that piece, grieving Mm -hmm. your perceptions, your, uh, I guess the, the loss of the normal life you once had before the diagnosis Mm -hmm. and, and not letting that grief take over, you know, because it's like for, in her perspective, grieving allowed her to be present with who her child was and showing up and, and, and embracing the, the journey of being an autism parent. Okay. I, and so her belief, and, and I do agree with her to some extent on this, is that when parents don't give themselves permission to grieve privately and, and in a healthy way, and, and not being able to find that community, then what they do is they put all of the expectation on their child to be normal so right. that they can regain, so they don't have to go through the loss and the grief. Yeah, fix my child. Um, right. Yeah, and, and, and I want to make it so clear that if you are that parent that did go through those feelings or is about to go through those feelings, you are not a bad parent. It is hard. Right. And... And and I say this as an autistic adult who is right. very reflective on the journey my parents went through. Mm-hmm. It is very hard. 
It's very scary. Um, I will also add that, you know, there are some parents who their child don't even get diagnosed until later in life. And their fear is, I don't know what's, I don't know what, why my child is suffering. And then when they finally get the diagnosis, they go, man, I wish I had known that earlier. Yeah. So it's also important for parents of like early diagnosis kids to be aware of is it's so hard, but at least you're getting that education early in your parenting journey rather than at the end. And and if you're a parent with a child diagnosed later in life, you know, I've talked to some parents about this because, uh, you know, I, I had a coworker whose friend's daughter had autism, got diagnosed at 18. And she felt like she let her child down because the diagnosis came later in life. And I said, you are not a bad parent because you didn't get that diagnosis. And, you know, this individual got her autism diagnosis in an inpatient clinic. Mm -hmm. And it's like parents, parents are not experts on everything. You, You know, parents do the absolute best they can with the tools they have. And you know, it's resources like this podcast that then make parents go, oh, now I know. Well, what can I reflect on about my past and what can I do differently moving forward? But just because you didn't have that information back then does not mean that you failed your child, that you made bad decisions, that, you know, it's shameful to live in fear that your child had autism. What it means is that you are an imperfect human who is on a learning journey. Yeah, exactly. And that that's Nobody okay. Nobody had all the and answers. All parents are Nobody, on that, yeah. yeah, all parents are on that journey. Absolutely. I mean, I, I'm sure you as a parent, you know, for whether it had to do with autism or not, I mean, you've got to feel like, man, if I had known back then what I know oh, now, sure. you know, yeah, yeah. I mean, we all go through that, but it doesn't make us bad people back then in the past, you know? Right, right. For example, you know, um, meltdowns does not equal tantrums, right? Yeah. So that was, a, that's a big learning curve. Yeah. Meltdowns yeah, have their own purpose. Okay. Well, yeah. Anyway. Um, so what, right. what other advice do you have for parents on this topic? Uh, well, I guess, I guess I've really shared my, okay. my two cents on it all. All right. Um, but I guess our next question is how can parents support a child with autism, regardless of where they are in their parenting journey? You know, it, it's best to start now. Mm-hmm. Don't grieve about, you know, well, I wish right. I had known this info in the past or, oh my God, what am I going to do if I don't have this info moving forward? Just where right. you are right now. And there's a how, lot of books out there. There's a lot yeah, of books. Yeah, yeah. So how there's can groups. parents support yeah. a child with autism in a way that empowers their neurodiversity and teaches them to unmask their autism? Right. So just what we've been saying, be informed about what autism is, knowing how it impacts your child, be an advocate. Um, and I would be supportive of joining groups of parents with autistic children, not only to get support and perspective, but have a greater understanding of what it means to be autistic. Yeah. How about you, Nicole? Um, so actually, I, I just very recently came across this great resource. Um, so the the woman is Christian Neff, but Christian is spelled Kristen. So mm. I think it's it's K-R-I-S-T-E-N-N-E-F-F. 
but Kristen is pronounced Christian. Okay. And she she's very big on mindfulness and self-compassion. And there was this really amazing podcast episode I had to listen to for my grad program. I didn't think it had anything to do with autism, but it just so happened. I think it was Christian. Uh, either that it was or it was the podcast host. But one of them had talked about, I think it was Christian. <laughs> um, so she had a son who was diagnosed with autism. And Christian was very big in the um, in the mindfulness, self-compassion practice. And she shared a story of the day that she got her son's um, diagnosis was the day that she had to leave for a, it was like a spiritual retreat. Mm. And so she contemplated not going to the retreat because she wanted to be there for her husband and process right. the autism diagnosis. And her husband sure. said, go to the retreat. Don't worry about us. Take care of you. Mm. And she said from that point on, she realized that she needed to have a mindful self-compassion practice throughout mm. this journey of understanding what it meant to raise a child with autism. She didn't say how old her son was when he got diagnosed. Um, I'm assuming it was early in life, like young child. Um, but I thought that that was a really profound, you know, pearl yeah. of wisdom you know, being able to, uh, I think having a mindfulness practice and mindfulness can look like many different things. It's not necessarily being a yogi, sitting in meditation. Um, you know, the way that Christian Neff explains self-compassion is about looking in the mirror and saying, good morning, I love you. Um, mm. and, and one thing I think that's helped me with dealing with core shame and perfection, which Christian Neff talks about is, is when, um, let's say, for example, you know, if we take the example from uh, the situation where you got upset at your son and you kind of realized like, oh, yelling at him was not the best idea not and I, I need to do something different. Right. Probably in the moment you felt maybe hard on yourself, like, why did I do that? You know, why did I make that decision? Like you, you talk so negatively to yourself. So what sure. Christian Neff said to switch that that self-compassion language is is you say, man, I shouldn't have yelled at my kid right. and I love you. So so she said that if if you allow yourself to express that moment of disappointment in yourself, but then follow it up by saying, I still love myself, even though I made this choice, mm. it, it's embracing your humanness and right. it's also not breeding shame. Um and it's teaching you resilience in your heart to say, no matter what happens, I, I love and accept who I am. And, 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 knowing, and, and knowing that you're going to make mistakes on the parenting journey. Oh, my God. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I think that, you know, it can be a really great tool to teach a, a young child with autism. Wow, I had a meltdown and I love you. You know, right. that you can share that with your child or like for me as an adult to to be able to have that positive self-talk and say, um, man, I I I had a panic attack today and I love you. Right. Yeah. You know, um, and and she said, you know, in the beginning, it, it can feel really artificial and it can feel very uncomfortable. And she said, try it for a week. And and it's a practice. It, and it's very similar to sitting down and meditating. 
where you just need to do it every day. And, and the self-compassion practice in this way, it's not, it's not sitting down with a journal. It's not about sitting in a meditation pose. It's catching yourself in daily moments saying, oh, I noticed that I had this negative self-talk. Mm. I acknowledge that's there and I still love myself. Um, and, and it's also being able to say, uh, oh my God, my son's not making eye contact with me and I still love him, mm -hmm. you know? So, so that can be, a, a, a powerful tool. Um, and yeah, anyway, if there are more resources I can think of related to mindfulness, I'll, we'll share them in our show notes. Um, anyway. Uh, other, otherwise, um, I'll say when I think back to the struggles my parents went through raising me, um, I think their struggles had a lot to do with the lack of information about autism in the 1990s. Right. Uh, my mom felt she was jumping into her autism education completely blind. And she said, uh, you know, so I got diagnosed in 1993. She said there was no internet. There was sure. no Google search on autism. She said... She got the diagnosis from a pediatric clinic and mm -hmm. she said, what are the next steps? And they said, here are the lists of contacts. Look at my yellow book and go from there. There you go. And I can't even fathom how scary that would have been for my mom. It's what we all Compared went through, to, right? you know, where we are today, where it's like, oh, it's autism. Just put it in Google and there you go. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, you know, and so I, I think as far as I know, like my mom, the information she got was like, she's, you know, she has autism. There's a strong possibility she could have severe special needs, but we don't know. Right. That's it. And these are the therapies you need. Yep. That good is the time. only information my mom got, as far as I know. And exactly. it was very clinical, like, mm -hmm. like this is the disease your child has. Correct. And these are the yeah. medical professionals, professionals you need to reach out to. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, oh, my God, like, no wonder that's scary for parents. Um, and that's right. not anybody's fault. It's literally there was no information right. out there. And right. the only gatekeepers of information were these neurotypical autism researchers that were probably most likely heavily doing research on people with severe needs. So, yeah. Um, and anyway, so when we were reflecting back on her parenting journey and I said, what do you wish, you know, in hindsight would have helped you on that journey? And she said, YouTube, Google, mm. blogs, right, right. Just you know, having access to info, information, yeah. You know, and and she said, and and I think she did a really good job networking and connecting with other parents. But like, what do you do if you're in a rural area? You know, um, we grew up in Denver, so we were really right. close to the Autism Society of Colorado. So there were mm -hmm. immediate on-hand resources, but. But the nice thing about social media is you can access that info and connect to parents no matter where they are. And the most beautiful thing since I started doing this podcast, so my mom has been listening to this podcast and she's really enjoyed it. And all of a sudden I'm getting these texts text from her and she goes, oh, I'm listening to this YouTuber that's autistic and she's talking about autistic traits and girls and I just want to share it. And I'm like, 
is she wanting to share it to benefit me or is she excited about what she's learning from a person oh. with autism? And, and yeah, it's just, both. it's so beautiful yeah. to see. And so uh, I, I guess I say this because I'm hoping that parents that are new to this journey are grateful that we have that, that huge repertoire of information out there. And that if that information isn't out there that you're looking for, go on social media and share your thoughts. It's so much more powerful than relying on a gatekeeper expert to tell you everything. Right. And I would just, just to insert two cents in into this, um, there are a lot of different groups that are supportive on both Facebook and LinkedIn, right? pretty much their, their membership. You can look into, you know, as you click onto these groups, there's an information page. If that's right for you, go ahead and join that group, Re request to join that group. And then instantly you're going to be in this community of people that are um, experiencing what you're experiencing. Uh, and I would also advise, advise, recommend that parents build connections and relationships with autistic adults. Um, I think, you know, in my experience of having coworkers who were parents of kids on the spectrum, they were major allies to me, but I also feel like they came to me as a resource as well. Mm. And, uh, and I also remember like if I had a student on the autism spectrum and I made the choice to share my autism diagnosis with their parent and the parent would say, oh my God, it's so great that I know this person with autism. And, and I've had some parents that have said, oh, I've made friends with uh, other adults with autism. Right. And, and I think that like when you have a relationship with a person with autism that is not on the basis of superiority, like a caregiver or a teacher, mm -hmm. you're not going to look at it from an infantizing lens because mm -hmm. every parent I have ever connected with that had hands-on experience of working with a person with autism or living with a person with autism, I was never talked to in an infantizing way. And, and I was also never, you know, I would say in recent years, these parents that I've been close to, it's not this conversation about, oh, what can I do to fix my child? What's your advice? It's, it's this, uh, I'm seeking out advice from the parent. They're mm -hmm. seeking out advice from me. It's a very collaborative communal conversation where it feels very uh, equally foundational and there's no like autistic people lecturing parents on shame on you for doing this and right, that. Right, and, right. and neurotypical parents are not going, well, you know, I know a lot about autism and I need to school this, this autistic adult on how to socialize. It's just a very respectful relationship. Yeah. Um, and I think that those friendships really um, change people's lives. And, and I will also add, if, if this is a window of opportunity for you, make sure that you seek friendships uh, with, with people in the autism community that are not necessarily in your demographic, you know, because um, I, I think that like, for me, I live a very white experience of what autism is. And there's this really great organization called um, The Color of Autism, and it's an organization that supports uh, primarily African-American um, autism families. Now, that's not to say that, you know, white people should go join, you know, because that's a safe space for those families. But I, I do think it's really important for 
um, you know, parents to understand what does the parenting journey look like for different groups of people? And, and, you know, how do we get that understanding of race in a way that informs raising a child with autism um, and what those systemic struggles look like? And, and how do we show up as allies for each other so that no parent of a diverse identity feels alienated when they're seeking out support from other parents? Um, and, and, you know, I have autistic friends of color. I have autistic friends that identify as non-binary and transgender. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I think that my, my autistic world is so much richer with, with having those layered experiences of autism and in these different types of identities and demographics and, and also, you know, socioeconomic, um, you know, so, so I think it's, it's not like, oh, I'm going to go deliberately seek it out. But it's about like, you know, getting familiar and getting out of your comfort zone, more importantly, of uh, making sure that that your journey of being autistic or having an autistic child is not rooted in one specific way of doing it, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, I, I guess the the only thing I'll add is I, uh, I guess, drive the point home. And, and, and I think that this is an evolving discussion. There is not resources on this. I think that it's important for parents to think about what it means to be anti-ableist, what it means to raise a child that is anti-ableist, mm -hmm. um, and, and to understand anti-ableism, not necessarily from the lens of autism, but just disability in general. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we went to a neurodiversity in the workplace conference and, uh, one of the keynote speakers was Haben Girma, who is the, she's a deafblind lawyer who graduated yeah, from Harvard Law. She's and, amazing. And she has an autobiography where she talks about all of the ways that she challenged ableism because there were so many people that said, well, you can't do this because you're deaf and blind. And she's like, want to bet? And she just, she pushed and found a way to make it work. And, and to me, that is an anti-ableist person. And, uh, and her parents as I mean, it sounds like based on her keynote speech was very supportive of that. And so if anti-ableism is sort of an uncomfortable politically charged term, just think about it from the lens of equity and inclusion. And right. so it starts with redefining what normal is. Mm -hmm. It's about examining your own background and how that plays a role in your understanding of autism, getting mm -hmm. educated on ableism and, and just making small decisions every day uh, with the way that you view the world, with the way you interact with other people, the way that you engage with school and with the workplace, uh, in a way that is building that awareness and understanding of supporting a neurodivergent person. Right. And, okay. and I think parents already do that, but, but again, you're not, you're not gonna, you're not gonna challenge ableism if you're attached to your child being normal. Right. That's, that's for sure. Yeah. So how about what advice do you have for autistic adults in the process of healing their core shame? Uh, so take advantage of the resources that we recommended in this episode. That's where I started. And that really made a difference for me. Um, I, for me and my journey, equity and inclusion training really helped heal my core shame. 
um, and specifically racial equity training. Um, it taught me a lot about how to identify things like stigma, systemic oppression, implicit bias, privilege, and fragility. And these things create so much of the foundation of those unspoken social rules that we must follow. And, um, and before I had that understanding of how those things operated, everything was a personal attack against my, uh, my social emotional intelligence. And I, it was taking a huge toll on my mental health. I was always crying and hard on myself and majorly perfectionist about my social skills because I felt judged by somebody or I upset them in some way because I made a mistake. And then I would just fixate on, I'm going to learn everything I can about a social skill so that I, I don't have that happen. Yeah. And I think that equity training taught me that somebody's reaction to my behavior is not always a reflection of me. Sometimes right. it's a reflection on them. And sure. sometimes it's a reflection of some bigger, complex, mm -hmm. cultural and systemic issues. And, and I think that, yes, it's very challenging to just be a big, loud presence and try to address those things. And some people do a great job of that, but that's not everybody's path. But I think that having those uh, perspectives at least helps you to pause and go, hmm, I think this is stigma. I think yeah. this is stereotyping. And, yeah. it, and, it, and it creates a boundary. So ultimately, I think what the equity and inclusion training did for me is it made me set better boundaries so that people's actions, whether deliberate or unintentional, did not create more shame. And it also made me a better self-advocate and more importantly, a mindful self-advocate. Because when it comes to implicit bias and privilege, I actually had a classmate that said, implicit bias is not inherently bad. It's what we, it's the actions and choices on that implicit bias that can lead to good or bad consequences. And right. so uh, the way that I look at it, and I think the, it's the way that you looked at it too, it's understanding that part of advocacy is under is having the belief that we are teachers and mm -hmm. we approach it from the lens of education rather than the lens of anger. Right. Um, and, and people have a choice of whether or not they're going to listen to it. And if they're not going to listen to it, uh, don't carry them on your back. Yeah, and that's, that's way easier said than done, For sure. but at least at least those steps and having that awareness, uh, it teaches you to not suffer with the fear of, of being alienated or ostracized because you're not normal. If anything, it teaches you to step into your power of mm -hmm. the reason I'm being marginalized is because of some problematic, bigger picture issues. And I need to address it interpersonally to start chipping away at those bigger issues. Right. Um, so do you have any advice for autistic adults healing shame? I just refer back to Gordon Gates' AFTER acronym. I think that's pretty appropriate, right? So activating behavior, focusing our efforts, thought retooling, exposure, and radical acceptance. I think it was a good process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and healing shame is not something that can be done in isolation. Definitely see sure. a therapist. And if need be, if it takes going to an inpatient clinic to get that healing to occur, 
that can also be a great resource or going to a crisis clinic. Um, shame is a beast. Uh, and it and it is very hard to tackle by yourself. So many people with autism talk about how teachers create ruptures in the interpersonal bridges, mainly because most general educators don't have a comprehensive understanding of how to support autistic students. A lot of disciplinary action against a student with autism causes core shame and reinforces performative normality. Brett, what can teachers do differently to support students with autism in a way that doesn't reinforce core shame? So we kind of talked about this, but um, you know, if we're if we're fighting this concept of normal in society, you know, every teacher has this ability to govern their classroom and to create a culture in your classroom. So, what kind of culture are you creating in your classroom? Are you creating a, a culture of inclusion? which everybody's valued, you know, that's going to go a long way in accepting everybody, right? So another, th another piece of advice is it, meet the autistic person in your classroom where they are in terms of class participation. Some people are comfortable with participating in class. Other people are not. Have that conversation, right? And find positive ways to have them be a part of your classroom. How about, how about your thoughts? So I'm going to be very honest about teachers from the perspective of being an autistic student and being a former autistic educator. One of the biggest issues with teachers is that because they love their students and are committed to diversity, they have everything figured out. So when a teacher is challenged by a student or coworker for doing something stigmatic, it triggers the teacher's fragility or vulnerability towards someone's character or belief system, causing shaming or anger as a defense mechanism. Instead of having a growth mindset, the teacher will state that he or she has successfully worked with diverse students for X amount of years and knows what they're doing, or generally use the amount of teaching experience as a way to get out of doing more equity and inclusion work. Because they believe that they are accepting and welcoming of all students, they will claim that they are exempt from any accusation of doing something stigmatic, thus villainizing the person accusing them. Many racial equity experts call these reactions exceptionalism and tokenism, which is a way of validating good intention and avoiding the responsibility of impact. One of the responses that I've had from coworkers when I've tried to address stigmatic behavior is by getting unsolicited social skills lectures. And I think that the idea of it being unsolicited is so important for people to consider. You need to ask permission when you know, giving advice on social skills or seek to understand where the person is coming from. Don't just jump right. in to sure. giving a social skills lecture. Sure. And if you, you think, yeah, exactly. And, and if you think about it, if you are at a job and your boss is giving you unsolicited social skills lectures all the time, and you're a neurotypical person and you're like, I know I'm capable of doing this. Um, or let's say that you're in a romantic relationship and you're constantly getting unsolicited advice on do this, do that. You sure. should do this. You should do that. It's it's annoying. Yes, it is. <laughs> and so I, I think that it's important um, and it's an it's actually been a really important therapy skill that I'm, I'm learning as a practitioner. And I think that we've learned this as teachers, too. It's about are you open to feedback? Mm -hmm. And if they're not open to feedback. Don't say, well, I'm going to tell you anyway, because you need to know this. If they're not open, right. it's going to be a very invasive boundary if you just 
bulldoze your advice anyway. Um, and ultimately I felt, uh, I, I think especially with my struggles with social professionalism, always getting social skill lectures, which I will say, and, and I don't want to say this and, and give autistic adults the impression that this should be the reason that they shouldn't be open about their autism. But I did feel like when I was open about my autism, I felt like my social emotional capabilities were seen under a microscope. Mm. And it and it just felt like every little imperfect thing was nitpicked to the point where I'm yeah. like, when can I make mistakes? Right, exactly. When is it okay for me to just be human and make mistakes? And I brought this up to my coworkers and I said, look, you can give me feedback. I will grow and reflect from that feedback. I right. need grace to be imperfect. And I need grace to be given time to process and ingest and practice that feedback. Instead of being like, well, I gave you this feedback and you didn't do it and you need to do it and blah, 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 blah. Like, stop it. Exactly. Like, it's it's exhausting. And, and ultimately what this led to is me coming home, crying all day, not being present with my students because I'm right. just uh, perseverating on the the anger and the grief and the fear of why can't I get it right? And then I come home and full transparency, thinking about cutting myself. And it was this vicious cycle of always getting triggered by these unsolicited social skills lectures. And it wasn't until the point that I set it, set those boundaries of like, oh, Maybe they're giving me unsolicited social skills lectures because they have this yeah. ignorant, stigmatic bias that I don't understand social cues and I need to speak up and educate about it. Right. And right. and I'm not going to lie. It is a very brave decision for anybody mm -hmm. who has experienced stigma or marginalization to speak up. And right. you're probably going to get pushback. I think for me, speaking up and and providing an educational opportunity about implicit bias and stigma to my coworkers and setting boundaries, like saying, please give me grace to be perfect or uh, to be human. Right. right. Um, I would much rather take that risk and have people be upset at me than internalize all of that, uh, all of those issues mm -hmm. and come home and self-harm. Because at least if right. I'm speaking up, it's on the table. There's a problem on the table. And whether or not we resolve it ourselves or we resolve it with the mediator, it needs to get discussed and shifted. Right. But it's not if, easy to do. It's not. And especially, I think, for people with autism that, you know, don't understand how to socialize in the workplace or have social anxiety, it is very vulnerable. Um, and I, I also am of the belief, like, I feel like for my mental health, it's easier for me to be that educational resource on the outside of an organization than right. being on the inside of the organization. Oh, sure. a lot easier, um, yeah. Because you're, you know, at least if you're outside of the organization, people can opt in. You're mm -hmm. not embroiled in like people knowing your business and figuring right, out how to right, work together right. every day. Um and, and, and ultimately it's just, it's a, it's a big, long, arduous process, but this is yeah. where I start. And, and I will add this too, cause this is like a, a really, this is grinding my gears a little bit when it comes to education. Mm -hmm. 
my therapy program is requiring me as a core curriculum to take a class called Social Multicultural Foundations, which is essentially an equity and inclusion class dealing mm. with identity, intersectionality, um, you know, working through implicit bias, understanding privilege. And I vocalized in my program, why is this not a required class for educators when they're getting their teaching license? Oh, for sure. I mean, it, it, it absolutely should be. And, and it should not be an elective. It should not be something that teachers should pay, you know, two to $4,000 extra to get training by option. And, and, and they shouldn't rely on their school district to do it because school districts, in my opinion, are very wishy-washy about the commitment to equity and inclusion because of sensitivity to how people in the community respond to that. Correct. But, yes. But like it, I brought, I brought this up because again, it's like, it, it's not equity and inclusion. Again, it, a good class like that is not going to be biased towards like race specifically. It's going to cover all of the identities and it's going to make you think about all aspects of yourself and, and be more relatable to other identities. So why wouldn't that be helpful for educators? So I, I brought this up in my grad program and I cannot tell you how many of my former educator cohort members wrote to me privately and said, I agree. I don't like that that happened. And, and I had people in my cohort who taught in lower middle income, you know, black and brown communities that said, we didn't get training on how to work with this demographic. And so it just blows my mind. Like, that that is so fundamental to education. You work with right. such a very diverse range of people, way more diverse than you will ever work with if you are a therapist. Why wouldn't you learn those skills? Yeah, for sure. And and I think that ability to be reflective on your bias is so important for education. And what I came to realize in this conversation is that that's not a skill that a lot of educators have or even required to have to be a teacher. And so that that was the uphill battle I felt that I was facing because my struggles and my stress and anxiety in my job came down to one thing. It was my coworkers reacting defensively to constructive, mindful feedback on stigma and bias. Um, right. Hence, hence society in a microcosm right there. Yeah. And, and honestly, I feel like if teachers or anybody in a position of authority, if they can start practicing that skill of being reflective on their bias and, and getting educated about stigma and privilege, that makes a huge difference alone. You don't have to get educated on race, gender identity, sexuality, all of those stuff. You don't have to get educated on that. You just need to understand who you are, where you came from, how other people respond to, you know, the historical impact of the privilege you're born with and how to be reflective and 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 do different and have a growth mindset when you are given feedback from somebody else who has felt marginalized and ask yourself, what am I what can I do differently given this information I have? Right. That's it. 
anyway, um, again, it, 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 you know, that takes training and that takes thoughtfulness and role playing to get comfortable in that position as well. Yeah. But, I, but I do think, I do think schools and school districts, um, should, should teach people how to have that skill. Oh, 100% because it'd be not uh, only useful for them, but also for kids in their classroom. Well, and I also wonder, especially if you're like a white educator, you know, working in a, in a diverse environment, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, you know, would that skill make it easier for you to work with parents? Because I always feel like teachers and parents are very adversarial with each other. And be. so it's like, right. And so it's like, I know that, you know, having that, that ability to ref be reflective on stigma and bias isn't going to fix all issues with parents, but some of them, you can have a, a better communicative relationship with parents if you have that skill. Right. Um, all right. So I acknowledge that most teachers, therapists, and parents are afraid of seeing their actions as stigmatic or harmful. That can trigger their shame about who they are as caregivers. So it's easier to deny it and deflect blame on other people. It's important to realize that that is a form of fragility. Um, and, the, and the word fragility is often associated with white fragility, which is a, a term coined by a racial equity expert, Robin DiAngelo. Mm -hmm. But I've had friends of color who have said fragility is a universal human experience. Mm -hmm. We all experience fragility. Um, and it's not just exclusively experienced by white people. It just comes from that what we don't know and and being called out on what we don't know is an accusation of our bad character and that that can make us defensive. And, and the mindfulness practice of addressing a fragility is about just being present with how we feel, recognizing what it is and making different choices. Right. So also... Uh, most of the social skills that neurotypical people have when interacting with a neurodiverse person is from a position of authority, a form of support rather than on equal terms. And that's why I go back to, you know, make sure that you're putting yourself out there to connect on a on an equal interpersonal level with other autistic adults, mm. uh, because that that if you. It, it is a privileged mindset to say, you know, oh, well, this person doesn't understand social cues, so I'm going to I'm going to advise them that that is ableism. And it's also. Um, I don't know, it, it, it's it's the bias of neurotypical privilege that because I know more because people with disability, uh, all disabilities are treated as if they're not intelligent. And, mm. and, uh, you know, right, and, right. and even people who were able-bodied and, and experienced an injury that caused paralysis or the loss of a limb, all of a sudden they're treated as if they're stupid. So, right. so the, I, the perception, oh, somebody doesn't know something and I should help them. Right. That is so harmful to the disability community as a whole, not just people with autism. Mm-hmm. And, and the way that you can deflect that is just be a follower or, or, or have a relationship with somebody that's not on the basis of like client and therapist or, you know, department chair and employee or, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, 
One of the hardest parts of being a teacher is that when we are pressured to educate ourselves on all sorts of equity and inclusion issues, and there are a lot of them, yeah. <laughs> a lot. Uh, teachers often feel stretched thin and burned out trying to take care of the needs of at most 130 students per year. So we are pressured to do training outside of school to support our students. And, and I go back to this. I don't think it's fair for teachers to spend extra money that they probably don't have on equity and inclusion training, which a no, school sure district not. can provide for free or that a, a college curriculum can mandate. Right. Um, and, and if, and if it's on their dime and they're not given any sort of continuing education credits, they're not going to do it. So that that's reinforcing, uh, a core issue there. Um, anyway, so, you know, teachers compromise the time we need for self-care and taking care of our families, uh, because we are doing training outside of school to support our students and that causes burnout which causes teachers to resist feedback on changing their ways. So I understand that asking teachers to reflect on their implicit bias, ignorance, and stigmatic actions is a lot to ask. However, I think every teacher would agree that we don't want to create harm or rupture interpersonal connections. At the same time, it will inevitably happen with certain students. Equity and inclusion training is always helpful. Seek and support, seek out support from people in the school that are experts on neurodiversity, such as counselors and uh, SPED teachers, special education teachers. Most importantly, collaborate with autistic students and autistic coworkers to create a neurodiverse friendly environment. If you wanna bring parents of autistic students into the mix, that's, that's great too. But make sure that if, you're, if you really tout yourself on creating a neurodiverse friendly learning environment, don't neglect the autistic voices. Yes. And also, you know, the voices of people with ADHD, dyslexia, right. neurodiverse community, all of that. the neurodiverse community. Mm -hmm. Racial equity training can teach reflective skills on the basis of stigma and privilege, which can be helpful when a person with autism self-advocates on the basis of stigma. So I, I definitely feel like my training on white identity has taught me to be a lot more reflective if say yes. I have a person of color that challenges me and says what you did was harmful mm -hmm. or if that person doesn't come up to me I have the ability to go ooh did I do something wrong maybe I need to reflect on that and maybe I could gently approach the person and say you know I noticed this I want to apologize can we have a conversation sure, and sure. And and I will say this too. I think I think this is a skill that humans struggle with is that that perception of impact versus intention. And I think that people feel like intention wins. And what racial equity training teaches is that impact is more important than intention because uh, you know if a white person comes up to a person of color and says, "Well, this is what my intention is," it's invalidating the the person of color's perspective and how it made them feel and it's the same thing working with students you know if a teacher is like well this is my intention and you should understand that well the kid doesn't care the kid just right. cares about how they were treated and how they felt absolutely and 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 i think that um what i always did as a teacher if i knew that i hurt somebody 
regardless of impact or intention, I'd say, I want to take responsibility. I apologize for the impact. Uh, I am aware that my actions hurt you. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, right. I would like to share my intentions with you, but only if you are open to it. Okay. So it, so the idea is it's it's being able to welcome both sides, mm. intention and impact. Because if you start with intention and you don't apologize for impact, right. you're negating sense. how the other person feels. Mm -hmm. And so I think that like, in my experience, if I come up to a coworker and I say, you know, hey, what you did was stigmatizing. And that person goes, well, it can't be stigmatizing because I've worked with, you know, Right, diverse right. students and kids with special needs for 15 years. Well, that's empowering intention and taking no responsibility for impact. Right. Now, I've heard the argument from people that have said, you know, well, sometimes uh, cancel culture is all about like getting people to apologize for impact that they have no control over. So like the whole cancel culture around comedians sure. is an example. And the comedians stand by what they do. And they say, mm -hmm. I don't care about the impact, like it's subjective. And so I don't think that the goal is always to apologize, but I think the goal is being mindful of both sides. And right, if right. you empower intention, you negate impact. If you empower impact, you negate intention. And I do think, you know, like what I do with my students is if I say, would you be open to hearing my intention? And they say, yes, that is an educational opportunity for them. So then they're like, oh, maybe what they said, maybe I misperceived it. So it's right. it, that that's a very important having a restorative conversation. And so, uh, so again, I think that we as humans are so busy defending ourselves that we don't say, I'm sorry, what can I do differently next time? That's all I ask when yeah. I'm when I'm having For a sure. conversation about stigma. I'm sorry. What can I do differently next time? Same right. thing with parenting. You know, it, it's like what you were reflecting on. I'm sorry that I yelled at you. I'm sorry I got angry mm -hmm. when you had a meltdown. Mm -hmm. What can I do differently next time? Right. When that they're when they're out very... of that moment, right? Oh yeah, yeah. no, definitely. Yeah, you don't want to. You don't want to see <laughs> Not that. Not during. Not during. Doesn't yeah, work. while while you're hugging them and they're crying exactly. and hitting themselves. It I'm sorry. Make, what can I do work. differently next time? They're not yeah. listening to you at all at that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and I and that's also a great relationship skill. I do that with my mm -hmm. husband. Um, mm -hmm. you know, we talk about intention and we apologize for impact, and mm -hmm. we say, "What can we do differently moving forward?" And we rarely fight because we have that skill. Oh, nice. So anyway, um, so having a growth mindset on feedback on the basis of stigma and equity and inclusion will only make you a more successful teacher. And that that is definitely a skill not everybody has. But, sure. you know, just like the self-compassion practice, it's a practice and you need mm -hmm. to be committed to it every day as the moment arises. And it's going to take some time to figure it out. And it's in. You might forget to do it, but as long as you're mindful that this is something that's important for you to do, you do it and, right. and you get better at it over time. Um, another thing that's really helpful, which I, I do think is sort of a, a new generational thing, is teach all students in a neurodiverse friendly way. Um, mm -hmm. 
I think this is easy to do to create burnout, uh, to stop burnout for teachers. Um, because I think, you know, based on what I've talked to my veteran coworkers about is they'll, they'll come into a classroom and it's like, oh, I got to deal with the kids that are low achieving and I got to deal with the gifted and talented kids. And I got to deal with the kids that are being defiant and behaviorally challenging. And then they open their emails and they have 30, 504 and IEPs. And it's a lot. And they're just like, oh, my God, I'm going to spread myself so thin Mm -hmm. if I have to go around and give everybody special attention. And so what both of my instructional coaches taught me is uh, just teach to the IEP. If it's applicable to a kid with autism, it's a it's applicable to everybody, like chunking out a project. You know, if they've got to write an essay, have break it down into steps. And each step has a certain deadline. So it's not a big procrastination sort of thing. Um, You know, and and that helps everybody. And it also doesn't alienate the person with autism is like, oh, you get special treatment because you're not a normal learner. Right. Um, Another thing is take a love and logic approach when interacting with autistic students. Um, I'm very big on love and logic, I think. And and in fact, I think a love and logic parenting approach could work really well uh, interacting with people with autism, because again, it's, it, it takes away the behaviorism. And I think teaching in general is very founded in behaviorism. Like you need to sit still, you need to make, give me eye contact. You need to be able to take notes. And I think that we as teachers are getting better about reading the social emotional cues of our students mm-hmm. and being able to go, ooh, they're getting a little fidgety. Maybe we need to get up and stretch. And oh, I, I've been lecturing a lot. Maybe I need to do something that's a little more hands-on. Yeah. Um, and to me, that's a, a, I think that being able to do that is in a way a form of love and logic because it's about oh, how do I make this fun for them? How do I make, you know, it, it's it's meeting students where they are emotionally that's causing the behavior rather than trying to address the behavior and ignoring the emotions causing it. And that's why I really love love and logic. I love love and logic. Um, yeah. And then the last thing I'll say is um, I feel like a lot of this advice would also apply to employers with of people with autism too. Mm-hmm. Equity and inclusion training benefits everybody. So it's a great opportunity to practice universal support rather than focusing on different diverse groups of people, which I'm a big believer that if you isolate it as, well, I need to learn about race, which that alone is a very big topic. And then, oh, I need to learn about transgender people and and gay people. And I need to learn about, you know, uh, neurodiversity and special needs and physical disability and yeah, you're going to be burned out. So just, you know, take what you learn from one group and apply it to other groups. There is crossover for sure. Yeah, and that, and that's, it's intersectionality. That's yeah. basically what it is. All right. So yeah. Brett, how do you think classmates and neurotypical peers of a person with autism could interact with that person in a way that doesn't promote shame? Also, how can a person with autism bounce back from shame-based interactions from neurotypical peers? So no easy solution, right? But, you know, it's important to find friends that you could, that accept you as you are, right? Which is no small tax, especially early in the early grades. Creating that culture of inclusion in the school and accepting of diversity can go a long way in 
creating a tolerant environment where everybody is accepted. And the other part of it would be, I would go back to um, Gordon Gates' NAB acronym, notice it, accept it, that the stigma is there, breathe, right, relax, and then begin to use resources to bounce back. How about you, Nicole? What do you think? Uh, so what helped me overcome shame from peer bullying was recognizing, and I talked about this earlier, that kids and teens are generally ignorant when it comes to social skills. Mm. And I just like the the whole pressure of like, you know, fitting into being normal when you're a kid. I think you can agree with me uh, coming from being a teacher. Nobody under the age of 18 has social skills figured out. Definitely not. And I think that this whole idea of like, be a normal kid. It's like, it's giving the impression that like all neurotypical kids have social skills figured out and they don't, they do not have social skills figured out. Right. And part of that is because of their brain development. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and, and do I think that some kids maybe are older souls that maybe are more reflective on their social skills or they're, oh, for they're sure. more empathic and maybe they feel inclined to be more helpful. Sure. That doesn't make them socially wise. It doesn't make them right. social skills experts. Mm-hmm. And why do we want to put that expectation on kids? Like that, that is a perfectionism perception. That's so mm-hmm. like toxic in right. my opinion. Um, and, and the other thing is it's like, kids don't, I don't know. There's a couple of issues. One is, well, a couple, a few. So part of it is the brain development. You know, kids kids react to things that they don't know, either from a place of curiosity or a place of annoyance. And the annoyance comes from like, ooh, this behavior is weird and different and it makes me feel this way. So- Or it's funny. Well, yeah. So so I remember- um, So I I had a classmate when I was, you know, from third to fifth grade, I I had a peer who had a ADD and she was bullied by a lot of the boys. And I ended up joining the bandwagon and eventually became her bully. And then we later eventually became best friends in middle Mm -hmm. school. But the one thing that I really remember that got her to be targeted is like uh, we're in maybe fourth grade. And we're sitting in the library and she just starts picking her nose in front of everyone. It was not a subtle, like, you know how adults are when they try to pick their nose and make it so people don't know. But she was like up in her nose and people were just like, ew, that's so gross. And you shouldn't do that. And she got relentlessly bullied for that. Mm. And so uh, and I remember like I joined in on that. And, and I, and, and I think back to like, well, how did it make me feel when I saw that she was doing that? Well, there are two things. One, it's gross. And two, it's considered not socially appropriate to pick your nose in public at nine, 10 years old. And so it, and, and, and it's not a logical thing. It's this like, emotional reaction. yeah, Yeah, it is, it is a very quick a short fused emotional reaction. And that's how Mm -hmm. kids are. And especially preteens. Right. And, and in my opinion, like I'm not going to downplay like the critical thinking of kids and preteens, but I do feel like teenagers start to develop that critical thinking, like by high school, a little bit more like 
you know, to me, I feel like when people bully in high school, there's a little more deliberation. It's like, I'm making a decision to do this or, ooh, this makes me feel uncomfortable, but let me think about this and maybe make a different decision. Whereas I think kids and preteens, it's a little more triggered. Right. Like, it's reaction, like you said. Right. It, it is very reactionary. And so I think, and, and, you know, when, and I think like, you know, especially if like that neurotypical kid comes from like this morbus of like, this is how socializing should be done. And you have a kid with autism who's just like doing things that are inappropriate or, you know, or like, I mean, or how many times. Fidgeting, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or like, uh, you know how kids are like when, uh, like when you have a bunch of kids that are getting all chatty and the teacher's waiting and then all of a sudden the kids just start yelling, shut up. The teacher's right. waiting for us. Like, yes, I know. It's yeah, that's kind of how they, they're very like, yeah. So, so they're very reactive. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's also this naivety that's so normal for kids because it's not like kids are, you know, if their only education is media and parents who are very biased in their beliefs, very unconsciously biased, you know, kids are kids are going to react in ways that may they not might not realize in that moment are problematic. They're not thinking about diversity and inclusion unless some adult is talking to them about it. Um, and so they're going to make a lot of fumbles when it comes to that. Now. Those fumbles don't necessarily dismiss that those actions can be very traumatizing for people with marginalized identities. Um, but I but I think it's also important to understand that I think kids and teens have a bias that's not malicious compared to like adults, uh, or or that malicious intent like we were talking about, it, it's based on brain development. It's extremely reactionary and it's based on upbringing. Um, and so, you know, it goes back to like, there's just so many complex reasons why kids bully. And sometimes right. kids bully because they're the victim of being bullied. Sure. Um, one of my best friends from fifth grade to high school, um, she was overweight and she was the victim of bullying. Sure, and she, yeah, you know, and she was the type of person that was really enamored with celebrity culture and the popular mm, kids. Mm. And she didn't feel like she belonged. But if she could bully me, an autistic nerdy kid, then she felt like she yeah. wasn't at the bottom of the barrel. That makes sense. And so I, I think what I what I want to say is that are these intentions and impact? It, it, again, it comes back to intention and impact. Mm -hmm. uh, is the intention always going to be excused based on the impact? No. But I think what I've learned as an educator is uh, just because somebody makes those decisions, it doesn't mean that those kids are inherently bad. Yeah. Most of them are just trying to, they're, they're on their social, emotional growing pain journey because of hormones, because they're experiencing adversity, because they experience stress at home, because they don't like school. Like there are so many reasons why they take out those frustrations on other kids. And it is a lifelong journey of figuring out how not to do that. Right. And I look at it as blind spots more than it is like kids are just bad. 
Um, and I think that being able to have that big picture helped me to understand and forgive the bullies from my childhood. Yeah. You know, it was really painful to have been bullied. But I think that as an adult, and, and more importantly, I started to notice this shift my senior year of high school where a lot of the people that bullied me started to feel grief and regret that they had bullied me. Okay. And that led to these really beautiful restorative conversations of like, I've grown out of that. I feel bad I did that. I also approached people I bullied and had those same remorses and said, I'm really sorry I did this. And it really goes to show that people change and especially, you know, kids, kids grow, kids change, kids find themselves. Most importantly, our value systems change so much when we're young. And I, I will tell you as somebody who, you know, uh, had bullied a kid with ADD and that kid became my best friend in middle school, I had so much remorse yeah, that yeah. I bullied her. And so I, I guess it's important to realize that just because somebody has those feelings now doesn't mean that it's black and white and they'll always feel that way. You know, it's it's complicated. For sure. um, and, and, and really, at the end of the day, all of that um, adversity is just coming from kids just having a lack of social emotional intelligence skills. Yep. Yep. Uh, which is what we try to support as teachers, right? Mm -hmm. That so mm -hmm. what is it? Uh SEI, social emotional intelligence learning. Right. Yeah. Um, so I benefited from reading about social skills and identifying the values I wanted in my friend group and my social community. Um, and then developing the awareness of autonomy and social interactions. Um, so for me, I think one of the biggest social struggles I had was like, I didn't know how to make friends. I just happened to land into the friend groups I did. And mm -hmm. I was terrified of losing those friends. But, you know, in high school, everybody started to grow and shift in like who they wanted to be. They wanted to reinvent themselves. They wanted to find different groups of people. And that meant leaving behind others. And the way that teenagers leave behind others is not necessarily a kind way. Right. Um, it's a very, let's just stop. It's essentially ghosting. Let's just mm. ghost this person in physical reality and virtual reality. And, yeah. and, it, and it's so hurtful. And, and I remember like, I had a, I had a guy friend that I had a crush on and we'd been friends from fourth grade to sophomore year of high school. And I think he got freaked out by me having a crush on him. Mm -hmm. And he just decided to like pretend I didn't exist. And it was yeah. so painful. Mm -hmm. And 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 I had anger about him doing that up until my 20s. Wow. And it wasn't until I became a teacher that I realized, what is a 16-year-old boy, 15-year-old boy going to do to like, tell somebody that they don't like them. And it's like, I still don't, I still think that like he could have handled it better, but I also sure. understand that like a 16, 15 year old, 16 year old boy just doesn't have the social skills of understanding, like how to handle that. Right. Exactly. And do I, do I look at him negatively as an adult today? He's probably a 
different person and he'll probably never talk to me again, but I don't care. Um, And so I think what happened from that is like, I I got to the point where I was bullied by my friends or I was ostracized by my friends. And it got to the point where I was like, well, if I'm going to make new friends, I got to take matters into my own hands. So that's when I started reading about social skills. And at first the goal was about making friends, but then there was this bigger goal, which was about how can I just treat people kindly? And so I, I, what I started to do is, is every time from junior year to senior year of high school, I would make an effort to come into class a little bit early. I would walk up to somebody I didn't know, or maybe somebody I, I knew from my past that, you know, uh, I didn't maybe have close ties to. And I'd say, good morning. How are you? I really like that necklace. Wow. I, I noticed the color of your eyes are really great. Or, oh, wow, I really like the way you did your hair today and just left it at that and and just gave space to see how people responded. It amazed me Mm. how many of my peers gravitated towards me from just doing that simple, kind gesture because so many of those kids that I approached were going through the adversity of bullying and the drama of their peer groups and academic struggle and to have Somebody who was not associated with that drama at all, somebody they didn't know come up to them and show kindness mm. made such an impact that can be that huge, then yeah. I started getting invited to lunch. Mm. And I and and it wasn't even just about having friends. It was like, oh my God, I have options. I have different quote unquote clicks. I felt I felt like I had mobility and options mm. for the first time in my life. Mm-hmm. And 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 I felt like I wasn't seen as like, oh, you're socially awkward. It was like, right, right. oh my God, you said something kind to me and, and I appreciate that. Um, and that's something that has really stuck with me for a really long time is just like, you know, treat people as people. And if you learn that skill, and, and I will also say this too, um, another story related to this is my freshman year of high school, I had a huge crush uh, an unhealthy fixation crush on this boy in my band class. And, you know, he didn't like how clingy I was. I, it was mm-hmm. like, I hung out with him all the time. He was the only person I ever wanted to hang out with him and his friends. His friends got sick of me and he, uh, you know, he didn't, he didn't like how his friends reacted to me and he was getting annoyed by my clinginess, but he, I didn't know this until years later, but he said, I didn't know how to set boundaries in a way that still showed respect to you. Nice. And, uh, and so he, so what did he do? He just ignored me, pretended I didn't exist. And it was so devastating for me. And, uh, and then I didn't, and then two years later, we ended up in a, in a science class and I was like, oh no. (laughs) Um, and so we ended up being partners and there was this like awkwardness between us, but it was this awkwardness of like, okay, this thing happened to us freshman year. How are we going to interact with each other and move past this? Right. And so, and, and I discovered he had a girlfriend and I was like, I'm, I don't have a crush on you anyway. You know, I'm past this. Sure, sure. But like, I just started interacting with him. Like, uh, you know, just saying, how are you doing? 
You know, yeah, like there's no, person. there's no social stakes of me asking you how you're doing. I'm just like, Hey, you know, mm -hmm. good to see you. How are you doing? Sure. Um, really like that shirt and, and leaving it at that. And, and for him, it was important because he felt like I didn't, um, I didn't judge him. Mm. And he, uh, so he felt like, cause he was afraid that I was going to have resentment towards him for what he did. And okay. for me to just say, Hey, I acknowledge you as a person. I don't have a crush on you. I'm not going to treat you the way I did before. Um, I just, you know, we're two people in a class and I care about how you're doing and that's it. And okay. for him, that allowed his walls to come down. Mm. And he was like, oh, I can have a different relationship. And then we became friends. Okay. And we became really good friends. Mm -hmm. And so that was really cathartic for me because uh, it, it was those two years provided a moment of growing and maturing for us where we were able to go, okay, we weren't our best selves our freshman right. year of high school. And right. obviously like it didn't work out for us to date, but can we have like a, a healthy communication right. moving yeah. forward? And that, and that was ultimately the goal. And when you leave it at that, who knows where it goes? Right. Um, and so I think what, what, I think that what was important and what I learned from it is it's in my hands to change the quality of my social life. Mm -hmm. And it didn't come from the, well, it didn't come from this place of wanting to be normal. It came from a place of, I feel deficient in something. Let mm -hmm. me make that a strength. And it truly okay. did become a strength. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and I think that if you, again, if the goal is to just treat people kindly, it, it does go a long way. And and I think the way I looked at it in high school was, I don't care if I have friends. If I have a good interaction with one person in my class every day, that's hmm. all I that's all I want. Okay. So, um, that can be like a really good start to the process. Right. Um. You know, another thing that's helpful is being open about autism to your friends. This mm. can be very vulnerable and increase yes. risk of bullying and alienation, yes. but it can also help you find the right friends. Mm. Um, and on that note, find friends that are also autistic and neurodiverse. Right. Um, I actually, the interesting thing is um, I had a group of students that were part of the LGBTQ plus community mm -hmm. and 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 this particular freshman group, it was like all the transgender and non-binary students knew each other. And I'd be like, oh, let me introduce you to so-and-so. And they're like, oh, we already know that person. And I was like, oh, wow, like <laughs> you guys have like ESP and finding each other. But what right. was so cool is like a lot of them were neurodiverse. And so because there was this safety net of like, hey, we're all part of the LGBTQ plus community, specifically being trans and non-binary, that also created a, a lot of safety for their neurodiversity, even with being neurotypical. And mm -hmm. so, um, and so I think like, you know, there's definitely like a trust process and some people feel like, you know, they don't want to talk about their autism with their friends. Cause it's like, why does it need to be in the picture? But it's up to you, but, but I don't think reveal your best friends are not going to that you're autistic. Um, and, 
if you don't find those friends in high school, find them when you're an adult. They are out there. Um, and then another thing that's really, really important, don't use your friends as a way to prove your worth as a person with autism. So if you're told, you know, oh, if you're open about your autism, there's going to be this collateral loss, like you're never going to have friends. Well, what better motivation for somebody to be popular? Right. Don't use your friends to prove your worth as a person with autism. And I did that at one point in my life, and it was really toxic. Now, it mm. wasn't like I was trying to be popular, but I felt like I needed to fill my social life with friends as a way to like prove that I overcame something with my autism. Right. And when I started realizing that that was such an ableist comment that people were making, I was just like, my friends have no bearing on my identity. Mm. Mm -hmm. And and to be able to separate that was was really important. But right. I will also say that that's a really tough skill to figure out when you're a kid. Yeah, for um, sure. I didn't really figure that out until I was in my late 20s. But right, I think right. it's an important way to look at your social life. Um, I think bullying is an opportunity for a person with autism to learn about setting boundaries, self-advocating, reaching mm -hmm. out to adults. Mm -hmm. um, you know, masking autism is not a solution for avoiding bullying. Self-advocacy skills are. Right. And, you know, ultimately those self-advocacy skills, if you think about it, and, and based on what I shared earlier about my peers, if they don't recognize the power of diversity through self-advocacy in that moment, they will certainly remember it when they're adults. Mm. You know, I remember, you know, again, it's like... uh if I reflect back on, on my former best friend who had ADD that I majorly bullied right. when I was in uh, elementary school, I didn't know about diversity, equity, inclusion, marginalization. She self-advocated, mm -hmm. um, you know, she, she, I think she did a really good job of both forgiving me and holding me accountable when we were friends. Like, okay. I'm going to give you a chance. But if you cross me again, you're out. Yeah, and for sure. uh, yeah, she became a very fierce uh, self-advocate and boundary setter as we got older. And it's something that even though we're not friends anymore, I, I do respect that about her, um, that that was something she grew into. And it was something that, you know, every time she defended herself or an adult came to her aid, of course, I, you know, played the victim. Woe is me. Why am right, I right. getting treated this way? Sure. Uh, you know, it's not fair. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but then like the irony is that then she became my best friend. And then I became this like really passionate neurodiversity advocate and mm. I'm married to somebody with ADHD. And I, uh, probably the students who felt the safest around me were students with ADHD. And I look back on that experience as like, I cringe. I, I, I right. cannot believe with as this passionate neurodiversity advocate that I did that to somebody. Right. But at the same time, it's like, wow, look how far I've come. Mm -hmm. And look what the friendship with this person taught me in my adulthood, as well as what were all of the factors Mm -hmm. about the way I perceived ADD at that time that made me right, choose right. to bully her. And so 
that's why I think that like, it's always important to self-advocate because those learning opportunities are always there for that person's entire life. Mm. Whether they're ready to access it at that moment or not, it doesn't matter. They will access it at some point in their life. Um, to keep going, if a neighbor parent knows about the child's autism, collaborate with them to teach neurotypical children to be more inclusive. The way adults model equity and inclusion also helps the way peers interact with a person with autism. Yeah, for so sure. I think it was in the stimming episode. I, I shared a, a story about how a student, a neurotypical student was getting annoyed by an autistic student stimming mm -hmm. and, and he was humming and she got really annoyed right. by it. Right. And she's like, can you make him stop? And so then I used it as a teaching moment without outing the kid and right. saying, you know, you know, some people really like to hum and sing while they make art. And so instead of having that judgment, she goes, oh, okay. And then she went back and she joined him in right. singing. And so, um, so that's where I think that uh, modeling equity and inclusion is important rather than being like, oh, this kid's agitated and taking the behaviorism bias and like, right, right. you know, well, you know, your humming is distracting other kids and you shouldn't do that. Um, and then the last thing I'll say is shame breeds shame. Mm -hmm. Bullying comes from a place of someone else's shame, which can come from a lot of different resources. For sure. Building an authentic self is not about taking somebody else's baggage or problem, or I'm sorry, let me rephrase that. Building an authentic self is about not taking someone else's baggage or problematic biases about autism in a way that breeds your own shame. Right. And it's in, a, in a sense, that's called internalized ableism. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to stigma and ignorance, that's also someone else's problem. That doesn't mean don't take responsibility for your actions. It's finding mm -hmm. a balance of when to take feedback as an opportunity for growth and when mm -hmm. to realize that somebody's got a problem with me that has nothing to do with me and I'm just right, going to ignore right. it. Exactly. It's just having that discernment is what's key. Okay. All right. So we have come to the end of this episode. We have talked about a lot of different things for sure, right? What shame is, as well as the difference between shame and core shame. We talked about the neurobiological and emotional impact of shame. We talked about how autism stigma creates the foundation of core shame and what core shame is, the types of sources that cause trauma and the shame for people with autism. And finally, we address solutions for autistic adults to heal their core shame, as well as how neurotypical caregivers and allies don't perpetuate stigma. All right, we are coming actually to the end of our season and our next episode is going to be our last episode, right? Which is autism and suicidal ideation. Mm -hmm. Follow Understanding Autism on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to receive updates on our upcoming podcast episodes. I also make artwork and poetry to promote each episode. Subscribe to Understanding Autism on YouTube and listen to us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, etc. Like, subscribe, and leave a comment. And if you have questions for us, post them on our Facebook group or email us at Brett and Nicole at understandingautism.info. All right. Thank you for tuning in and we will see you next week. Until then, I am Brett Thayer. And I'm Nicole Cabellas.